All right. Well, we're going to go ahead and get started on the book of Job. If you are not here for the book of Job, uh, then you might want to scoot on to the class you are here for. But uh, I'm, I'm really glad you're here. You'll probably want to be in a position where you can both see the screen fairly well and, um, and then dialogue with everybody. I think where we're sitting is fine. Y'all might want to think about moving up. I think it'll just help in general because we are going to have some opportunities for discussion and stuff like that. Um, but yeah, let me just introduce me, and uh, we'll pray to open here in a second. But um, uh, my name is Benson Hines, and I get the awesome chance to serve on Watermark staff in the external focus area, which at our church just means all the service and outreach and mission stuff. So if you need help finding a place to serve outside the walls of Watermark, um, I'm your guy, or at least I'm one of your guys. Uh, my um, I had the after a and m went to seminary and then did a bunch of college ministry stuff after that um and yeah, then landed on the external focus team in January. My uh, co-teacher this morning is John Almquist. He's sitting over here, and uh, he is a part of Watermark's residency. After coming out of the business world, he's a part of what Watermark has done now for a couple of years, and that's have a team of residents. They're kind of like interns, but really a whole lot more. They serve on our teams just like anybody, but then they also do some pretty... Um, hardcore uh, theological training along the way for about a nine-month period, and it's designed for those who are really thinking about vocational ministry long-term. And so I'm really, John has been, he'll get to, you know, he'll be teaching some in front of you this morning, but he has been a huge help uh, just behind the scenes and prepping this. We didn't have a real long time to prep, and so it has been incredibly helpful to have um, him and me be able to huddle on that. Um I first probably got intrigued by the book of Job, besides just reading it as a kid. I grew up in a Christian home, and so I'd read Job. But one of the first times I remember really being interested in it was uh, because of something a professor said at Texas A&M. You know, when you're in especially a secular college, there's lots of little things professors might throw out that challenge your faith, and I had some of that. But in this case, it was actually something interesting from a professor that otherwise, I have no idea if he was a Christian or had any faith at all, but there was one day in the middle of class, I don't even remember the context, that he noted that the best answer he had ever seen to what's called the problem of evil was the book of Job. And it totally struck me, partly because I'd never heard this guy talk about anything religious um, up to that point. He was a logic professor, so it's not like we were constantly talking about science or philosophy or anything else. Um, But he said that, and and that stuck with me. Um, The first time I ever studied Job was when I had a friend face a um, pretty rough divorce. I don't know if there's any divorce that isn't rough, but um, but his was particularly messy and just hard, you know, a couple of years into marriage, and he and his wife split up, and I wondered what my role, besides speaking truth, besides, you know, working to see if there was reconciliation, just being a good friend as he faced deep, deep pain. And I, I think I heard Chuck Swindoll doing a message on Job and how Job's friends weren't good comforters uh, at one point on the radio. And I said, I want to know that book better. Like, I want to dig into that book, learn it just for learning's sake, but also see if God has anything for me and just how I can help my friend and others who are facing hard times. And so that's that's really the first time I studied Job. And, and really, I mean, that was back in like 2004, but that's the genesis of what I'm getting to do today because um, what I did at that point was 
I um, worked with a couple of commentaries, just Bible commentaries, and my Bible. And I read through, but anytime there was something I didn't understand, or just as I would get to a new chapter, I'd read the commentaries to see if they had anything to um, just elucidate what was going on. And this is the result. Um, the My Bible was fuller back then. Um, I've changed Bibles since, but when I was changing out Bibles, I didn't have a lot of notes in the rest of it, but I did have these Job notes that were really important to me. And so, um, you know, taped them together and made sure I'd have this and just did handwritten notes all the way through about what Job was meaning or the book of Job was meaning as we walked along. I would encourage you, if nothing else comes out of this class, uh, that you think about what are the parts of Scripture that you need to know better. Maybe you'll use that tactic. There's a lot of commentaries out there, and whether or not you've ever been to seminary or consider yourself a scholar, there's a lot of opportunities to dive in. And so, and I was just thoroughly blessed, and even if I never got to teach on it, getting to know this powerful book was well worth my time. And I remember I was substitute teaching back then, and um, I remember just in the middle of class, you know, when I put in the video or whatever that the kids were watching, I'd be just sitting there reading Job and reading my commentaries, and it took me a while, but I made it through, and I had something that'll last me forever. My hope is that this will function similarly for you, that as we walk through the book of Job this morning, and if you didn't get notes, John, you might go grab notes and just see, um, they were on the back table. If anybody didn't get them, you want to make sure you have these. They're designed to help you walk through the book of Job, not to day, but for the rest of your life. Like, I really hope this is something you can keep. Um, And I've filled in a bunch of notes um, that we won't cover today. I'm not just going to read what's in front of you. But then there's spaces for you to add stuff for kind of the introduction that we present today. So I encourage you to use those notes in the same way that I've used my own notes. Um, Real fast, before we really dive in, I'd just love if a few people want to share, why'd you come? Like, why did you pick this to learn about? Anybody brave enough to share? Yeah. I've, uh, I've gone through some hard times in the past, and there are some specific points, especially in the first couple of chapters of Job and the last couple of chapters, that, uh, that assisted me significantly. Cool. Um, the the middle is there's, there's parts in the middle that help, but to me that's a uh, a bit more of a mystery to me. Yeah. Uh, of, of why it's so long. Yeah. Uh, because uh, a, a lot in the, in the beginning, a lot in the end are, are very impactful, but the, the middle is, a, is just a uh, an enduring story to me that I don't, I don't have to grasp Yeah. Um, if you didn't hear him, I mean, he said that the front end, front and back of Job, it really helped him walk through some hard times. Um, but at the same time, that middle part is a mystery. And hey, I think a lot of us are there. That's where I was. You can read the first part, you can read the last part and kind of get this story, but figuring out what's going on in the middle, well, well, that's a big part of why we're doing today. So thanks for sharing that. Anybody else come for a different reason? Yeah. I kind of, uh, same thing with Corey gone through a lot of adversity and still am going through stuff. Um, and it's it's interesting how you know the Lord will touch us and in a sense validate us through similar stories. Yeah. And uh, I think it's just amazing to continue to live for that hope of what's to come. And so I, a lot of times I, I think it was last weekend, maybe the weekend before, but like, well, which Bible character is more? And then I'm like, oh, Joe. <laughs> yeah, that's true. Yeah, that's not that. Uh, yeah, just first thing that came to mind. Yeah. 
Great. Uh, yeah, facing adversity and looking for hope and, and really identifying with a guy who is clearly the most famous sufferer, um, maybe in the Bible, I mean, certainly in the Bible, but maybe in a lot of other forms of literature, too. Anybody else want to share why they've come today or why they picked Job? The first part, that's part of the thing, I think we've already read before, and maybe somebody says, but the middle part is kind of like, it's kind of more interesting. I mean, you might not push about it, but I mean, it's kind of figure out what's behind the story about it. Yeah. Yeah, just figuring out what are these friends doing? What are they saying? Are they right? Are they wrong? Are they somewhere in between? How all that works? Um, we'll, we'll definitely, we're going to try to answer that question. If we haven't, um, then we've semi-failed. Um, let me talk about some other goals for today. Um, I do want you to learn the basic plot and outline of Job. I think it's so helpful going in, especially to a book like this, to say, here's the ark. Here's what's happening I want you to feel confident reading through Job. Um, You know, if you can't get a grasp, I mean, you can maybe read a chapter or two like that. It's really hard to get through 42 chapters if you can't tell what's going on. Um, And even those middle chapters, it's like 3 to 37. So that's, what, 35 chapters? Um, That's a long time to read if you you don't feel confident. I want you to get excited about this amazing book. Um, As you'll hear me say multiple times, this is not just a book about suffering. Suffering is a huge part of this book, but there are some amazing themes that come out of this. I mean, remember, my prof said it was an answer to the problem of evil. I read it to help my friend get through suffering or be a good comforter. So even those two areas are a little different than just personal suffering, and we'll see some more. Um, And then I do, I mean, one of our big purposes, when John and I first sat down to prep this, I said, one of my goals is that they would walk away reading this book. Uh, That'd be my encouragement, is that even as we go through today, you make a goal for when are you going to get this book read next? You could read six chapters a day and be done in a week. And it's, I would say in some sense, it's meant to be read like that. We'll talk more about this, this as a, as a literature story, even though it's true. Um, and as almost a play, a play is meant to be viewed. It's not meant to be viewed in little segments. So if you've got a Saturday or a Sunday or sometime that you can burn through the whole thing or burn through a bunch of chapters, do it that way. But even if you have to pace yourself a little bit, I'd encourage you to get this book read. The book of Job. Let's talk about the setting. Um, Actually, that's the point I want to pray at. Let me pray to kind of get us going. God, we thank you for bringing us here. Um, Some of us are coming because we feel like Job right now. Some of us are coming because we just love this book. Some of us are coming because we love the Bible but want to understand this part of it better. And there may be a whole host of other reasons. I thank you for the opportunity to talk about Job this morning, and I pray uh, that we would all do it well, that John and I would would speak your words, but then the rest of us too, as we share and think and write and um, share with each other, God, that your wisdom would just flow within this room. Uh, We want to learn your thoughts, and I thank you for an amazing book that shares some of them. It's in your son's name we pray. Amen. Okay. I'll go fast on this stuff. Um, This is a two and a half hour class, which seems long, but it's also a long book. Um, And so, you know, there'll be points that we kind of need to keep going speedily. And and again, remember, the goal is for you to read the book, um, not for us to just read the book over the next um, two and a half hours. The setting of Job. Um, This... The setting, what's happening, Job is a guy who lived in um, 
probably the time of the patriarchs, which means Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob time. We don't know a lot about him except that he was not an Israelite. It'd be easy to assume that he was in Israel, but it says he was from the land of Uz, and that's not in Israel. Um, There's only one character in the book that really seems to have an Israelite sort of name um, besides God, who, um, and that's something we find out about, I'll talk about that in a second, but in the writing of Job, we find out the author is an Israelite. The setting of Job um, leads us to Job, what I call Job's honorable mentions. The, the character of Job, the person of Job, shows up a couple of other places. Ezekiel 14 lists him as, a, as an honorable man, as a famous man of faith, even at that point. James 5 talks about him as someone who persevered well. And the book is quoted in the New Testament, at least clearly quoted, a couple other times. There are probably some allusions and other things. The writing of Job. There are some scholars, particularly in the conservative camp that we would tend to ascribe to here, that would say Job was probably written right after or near, you know, near to the events that it describes. But even a lot of conservatives, a lot of people who would say the Bible is absolutely true, these days really feel like it was probably written later than that, that it was probably written after Solomon or maybe after the Israelites came back from exile. That doesn't make it less true. It's just when it, when God chose to inspire a a person who, and we don't know who that person was, when he inspired them to write this book. And so um, there's a few reasons for that. There's a few words that show up that seem to be sort of words that come from later in in Hebrew or later in Israel's history. Um, There's some other things that happen there that just help people to realize, uh, it may have come later. Um, including the fact that it seems to quote other scriptures, which wouldn't have been around at the time of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. So it doesn't really matter. It doesn't, you know, believing that God inspired it doesn't mean we have to know who the author is or exactly when it was written. Uh, If you need a book from the New Testament that we don't know really who the author was, that's the book of Hebrews. Um, And we're in the same camp with that. And yet we believe that God inspired that person to write that book for a whole lot of reasons that we can talk about in a break or something about how the Bible came together. The book of Job in the Bible. Anybody know what section the book of Job would be considered to be in in the Old Testament? I hear little whispers. Anybody want to take a guess? History. It is a history. Yeah, it's definitely in that chunk of the Bible that would be considered history. But in the way a lot of scholars will lay out the Bible, they will talk about these books specifically being the books of wisdom or the wisdom books. And so that's going to include Job, Psalms, Proverbs, Ecclesiastes, and Song of Solomon. It is among those, it's the one that most clearly tells a story. So it does sort of bridge from the books that come before it, Ezra, Nehemiah, Esther, to the rest of the wisdom books, because unlike Proverbs, it's not just a bunch of Proverbs. It is relating some things that really happened. Um, Okay, let's look at reading the book of Job. What do we need to know? So we're approaching this book. We're about to go through the whole thing. Uh, What do we need to think about before we do? For one thing, it is a difficult book. 
um, it's difficult for scholars. There are places where Job is a little bit of a mystery. And that, you know, may be frustrating. I know I'm a, like a black and white kind of guy. I wish there were no questions about what the Bible means here or what the Bible means there. But, but there are. And we have to trust that God originally inspired this. But at the same time, there are great scholars who do a science called textual criticism that are able to get back and work on what does it originally mean. Nothing of major importance is in question, but sometimes we don't know. I mean, we're looking at an ancient book that's talking about ancient things, and we're having to say, okay, what did it mean to them then? It's a difficult book. It's difficult for us, and, and some of y'all already talked about it. It's, it's a tricky book to read. Hopefully, this class will help with that. One of the reasons it's a difficult book, especially if you're sort of newer to Christianity or, or you've just really majored in reading the New Testament, is that it's not a book that you're necessarily going to go through and get a bunch of memory verses from, would be one way to put it. There's some great places you can memorize in Job, but in general, it's not like in Ephesians, where nearly every verse is, man, that's a powerful truth for my life, or man, that's something about God, or, you know, specifically like one encapsulated in one verse kind of truth. Um, Instead, this is a book that does tell a story. It does have major themes. Uh, When I wrote my Join the Journey this year on Leviticus, I think in there I put that um, it's kind of like that, in that you read the book of Leviticus, and there's many laws that don't apply to us as Christians today. And yet, the book as a whole makes some major points about God's holiness, about how we can't approach God in and of ourselves, all those sorts of things. Well, Job has some major themes, but sometimes, unless you really get a grasp at what's going on, it's a little bit harder to pull stuff from Job than it is from Philippians. And so, hopefully, today will help with that. It's good to talk about, um, oh, I've already talked about it being a powerful book. Um, I would just reiterate that time and time again. This book is a book that really can change your life. And you may never have any have had anybody tell you that about the book of Job, but it's true. Um, and I hope that today helps begin to shine the light on how that can happen. But then as you read it for yourself, you'll be able to see how. A third point to get is that the Bible is literature, even though it's true. Again, there are books like the letters that we're way more familiar with that style. That's how we hear sermons preached. That's how we write letters sometimes to each other if we're trying to exhort or encourage each other. This is a different sort of book. Doesn't make it not true, but it's important to remember that that the author is telling a story here. That he's presenting this book almost like a play with acts and scenes and a sense and all that. Uh... Hebrews in the New Testament may very well have been a sermon, and so that's a different example of a kind of writing. Psalms is a book of a bunch of songs, and so if you don't go into a book knowing you know, its genre or how it's set up, then you're, you're going to miss something. And so don't lose sight of the fact that the author is trying to accomplish something in how he tells this true story, because as we go along, you'll see that he really is, you know, there's the, a structure to it and all that, and so remembering that we're reading a really, really great story. It's just a story that that is true. This is a little bit trickier, um, but it's really key to understanding the book of Job. I believe the Bible is absolutely true, that as God originally inspired people to write it, that he wrote truth, inerrant truth. I don't have any problem with that. 
But we've got to be able to deal with a book that rightly records wrong ideas. And here's what I mean. Anytime there's a story, I mean, Jesus talking to the Pharisees, the Pharisees are saying some wrong stuff. It's a little bit harder when we approach a book that has chapters and chapters of stuff that later God's going to say, you got it wrong. So again, hold that in, you know, in your mind. The Bible is truly recording some things some guys said that weren't necessarily true. Does that make sense? Um, I can accurately talk about something Thomas Jefferson said, but if I tell you something Thomas Jefferson said that we all know was a lie, I'm still being truthful. It's Thomas Jefferson that was telling the lie. When the same way, we're going to hit many chapters that at least we're, we say what they said had some error in it, but what God's writing down doesn't. Hopefully that makes sense. Any questions on that? Because that's pretty key for us saying the Bible's true, but it can record some things that people said that weren't true. Any questions? Cool. Anywhere through here, if you've got a question, I mean, if, we're kind of, if I'm kind of flowing, feel free to raise your hand. But there'll be lots of times I say, hey, are there any questions? I won't wait. The, um, when I was at A&M uh, in a psych class, they encouraged us to wait like 12 seconds when you say, hey, does anybody have any questions? Uh, I'm going to ask that a lot. I probably won't wait a full 12 seconds every time. So be ready to go. Just feel comfortable enough to jump in with a question. Um, let's see. Is there anything else on this? Yeah. One more really big thing about the book of Job that's going to come up an awful lot, and it's that um, the doctrine of divine retribution. How people throughout, really throughout history, and certainly back then in Job's time, would have seen God. It's this idea that dogmatically... How I'm doing is tied into whether I've been right or wrong before God or the gods. I mean, depending on what their beliefs, you know, certain groups' belief system was. Certainly, we know that following God is best for us. And we know that going against God is worse for us. But how that best and worst works out isn't through having a bunch of money or not having a bunch of money or having your health or not having your health. The doctrine of divine retribution really ties God in a sense to a contract that if I do what's right before God, if I make the right sacrifices and do the right thing, then I will automatically have a prosperous and successful life in the, in the way that you know the mater, uh, materialist would talk about it, that, that I'll be materially blessed, that I'll be physically blessed and financially blessed blessed and, uh, you know, I won't be sick and, and all those sorts of things. That doctrine is going to be continually um, battled against through the book of Job um, because the friends believe it. There's other characters you'll see who kind of espouse it, but, um, but we're going to see that this book is a lot about saying that doctrine isn't true. Like I said, it's not just a book about suffering. It's important to remember that. It is. That's part of it. But we can't go into Job just looking for what it says about suffering because it says a whole lot more. Let's talk about the progression of the play. Um, again, I don't know that it was actually set up as a play, but it sure has that sort of structure. 
The opening act is going to come. That's the part that, that it's likely that a lot of you or maybe everybody in here has read. Um, it's written in prose form, and it just kind of straight up says, here's a story. It's a very cool story um, about what happened to Job. It's very interesting, but, um, but that's what happens. Then we jump into the people talking. It's interesting to note that Job comes first. One of my assumptions when I wasn't that familiar with the book was that it was a book all about the friends talking and then Job kind of responding. But the interesting thing to realize is that Job's actually the first one to say something um, in all the speech parts of things. Um, He's going to voice his pain, and then we get into the monologues. Um, These aren't dialogues. These These are guys talking at each other, most often sort of past each other. There isn't a whole lot of direct rebuttal going on. Sometimes that happens, and we'll talk about it. Then there's a sort of interlude that we'll uh, point to in chapter 28, a really cool poem to wisdom um, or about wisdom. Then Job sort of makes his closing argument. It says the words of Job have ended. Then this new cat comes on the scene um, named Elihu. He has some stuff to say that John will fill you in about when we get there. And then God enters the scene. And for four chapters, um, he's going to answer in a sense. Um, And we'll talk about what all that means and what he does. And then we hit the finale. We're back to very much just telling a straight history, still an interesting history, but but a history um, of what happened to Job after all of this event occurred. So that's the way, that's where it's going. And we're going to break it down um, after that. So let's start. Um, There's going to be a lot of chances that we have for people to read today. Um, You know, I'd love to read the whole book, but again, the point is to get you reading the book. But if you've got your Bible or whatever, now would be a great time to open it up or get to it on your phone or whatever, because we're going to be marching through, and there's going to be some good chances um, to just just read together. Um, Before we read chapters 1 and 2... Um, what you're going to see here is Job has a wealthy and holy existence. Then we're going to hit a first round of challenge from Satan. Job's going to begin to suffer. There's going to be a second round of challenge. Job's suffering will deepen, and then Job's friends will show up. Does anybody want to read um, chapters one, chapter 1, 1 through 12 for us? Then Satan answered the Lord, Does Job fear God for nothing? 
Have you not made a hedge around him and his house and all that he has on every side? You have blessed the work of his hands, and his possessions have increased in the land. But put forth your hand now and touch all that he has. He will surely curse you to your face. Then the Lord said to Satan, Behold, all that he has is in your power. Only do not put forth your hand on him. So Satan departed from the presence of the Lord. So setup is pretty clear. Uh, Job is quite wealthy, quite um, you know fortunate in this life, and there's nothing to say that there's a problem with that. Um, he's also holy. He's not just holy, but like he's looking out for his kids. He's having sacrifices in case they've messed up um, because he so wants to make sure that he and his family, as the, you know, as he's kind of the, in a sense the patriarch of his family, that they're doing everything they need to do. And then Satan shows up. And, you know, it's a little bit tough to realize that Satan shows up and says, hey, I've been walking around on earth and God seems to pick a little bit of a fight saying, hey, have you checked out my buddy Job over here? Um, But he does. And, uh, you know, how awesome would it be if God was able to talk about us like that? You know, that he would point us out as like the science fair project, the display item um, in the catalog of, of what he's doing on the earth and how people are following him. But that's what he does. And Satan, right off the bat, says, yeah, but he's serving you because you've been so great to him. Now, something interesting about that is that right off the bat, that would seem to, you know, fit in with everything we've kind of said about the doctrine of divine retribution. But the funny thing is, even Satan there sort of flips it. That Satan doesn't say, yeah, you've blessed him so much because of how great he was. He says, yeah, Job's following you because you've made life so easy for him. See how that's sort of a reverse? That even Satan, he's not, Satan's not worried about the doctrine of divine retribution retribution because he knows it's not true. Instead, he's saying, yeah, 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 that's great, but Job's being nice to you because you've been so nice to him. Um, Then it goes on, and verses 13 through 19 are just the really tough story of all this stuff. And it's easy to read that stuff fast because it's recorded pretty quickly. But these are terrible, terrible calamities that befell this guy in the course of a very short amount of time. And we can't forget that there's emotion here, and we'll get to that even in chapter 3. But really awful stuff happens. And then um, verse 20 says, Then Job arose and tore his robe and shaved his head and fell on the ground and worshipped. And he said, Naked I came from my mother's womb, and naked shall I return. The Lord gave, and the Lord shall take away. Uh, I'm sorry, the Lord gave, and the Lord has taken away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. In all this, Job did not sin or charge God with wrong. Then we come to chapter 2, where a similar thing happens, right? That it goes down, and Satan's walking through the world. He comes to God, and he says, I've been walking around. And God, you know, almost snarkily says, have you considered my servant Job? You know that guy you said wouldn't follow me? He's still following me. He's still doing good. Have you considered my servant Job? And Satan says, yeah, yeah, yeah. But you only let me touch his stuff. Let me touch him, and we'll see just how much he wants to follow you. Um, So somebody read from verse 7 through verse 9. So Satan went out from the presence of the Lord and afflicted Job with painful sores from the soles of his feet to the top of his head. Then Job took a piece of broken pottery and scraped himself with it as he sat among the ashes. His wife said to him, Are you still holding on to your integrity? Curse God and die. 
Read that. Sorry, read 10 too. He replied, you are talking like a foolish woman. Shall we accept good from God and not trouble? In all this, Job did not sin in what he said. Great. And then the friends show up. Verse 11, now when Job's three friends heard of all this evil that had come upon him, they came each from his own place, Eliphaz the Temanite, Bildad the Shuhite, and Zophar the Namathite. They made an appointment together to come to show him sympathy and comfort him. And when they saw him from a distance, they did not recognize him. And they raised their voices and wept, and they tore their robes and sprinkled dust on their heads toward heaven. And they sat with him on the ground seven days and seven nights, and no one spoke a word to him, for they saw that his suffering was very great. One more thing I want to point out um, before we kind of dissect this chapter a little, or these two chapters a little bit, is that's another way that we see the doctrine of divine retribution right off the bat has been thwarted. Because here's this guy that we, by how he acted during suffering, we find out that he really was a good dude, that he really was holy. I mean, God was bragging on this guy, and yet bad, bad things happen. It's important because we've got a view that the friends didn't have, right? The friends don't really know. I mean, they thought Job was a good guy, but they're about to blame him for a whole bunch of stuff. But we know the behind the scenes story. We know Job's a good guy, and yet he's going to face all this trouble. Now we're going to dig into the chapter, and one of the first things we come across, oh, let me read this, sorry. In a world where it is believed and taught that actions have appropriate consequences, despite the many evidences to the contrary, heaven itself has now sabotaged that doctrine with a most shocking infringement. Let's talk about Job is blameless, and John's going to share what he's learned about that. Hey, everybody. So just uh, real quickly, when looking at Job is blameless, as I first kind of set out and started reading this book, I kind of came through it through the lens that a lot of you would be doing it as. Okay, what's God really trying to teach me? What are the parts that don't necessarily make sense? What can I learn and then grow from? Would you guys mind have seen when we read 1-1 and he kind of talked through it, Job is described as being blameless and upright. So I read that and immediately I thought to my understanding of what does blameless mean? What is upright? What does that look like in reference to God? So here's what this is not saying, which is my first understanding. That he was sinless. So Job, great guy, holy guy, did a lot of good things. Same way he made provision for his children, everything like that. But this is not saying Job never made a mistake. He was a guy just like us. All sin falls short of the glory of God. And that's right where Job was in a lot of it too. But what God is trying to do through this is show a comparison, a contrast between Job and the others there. God does this in a lot of other places. Two of the more prominent are where he describes Abraham and then he describes Noah. It's a sign of intimacy with God. It's a sign of, this is God's man. This is my man. Almost where Benson was talking about God bragging on him. This is essentially God stepping up and showing, hey, Job is blameless and upright. And by that, he's my champion. He's with me. See what you can put against him, and he'll stand to it. So that was kind of the first thing that really uh, stood out to me as I was looking through that. So as you guys go through, know again, holy, but not sinless. So Cool. Yeah. What about this wife? Um, she shows up and um, really does, uh, in a sense, mess Job over, doesn't she? That, uh, that she comes to him and says, do you still hold fast your integrity? Curse God and die. 
Um, I, I like this quote. This is from a very old dude, um, Haskis of Jerusalem. Now, since the betrayer had been defeated in every battle, had failed in all his attempts, had been hindered in all his hunts, had been deprived of all his schemes, and all his traps had been broken, after destroying Job's wealth, after the death of his numerous children, after ripping Job's body with his blows, as a last and, in the betrayer's opinion, most compelling resource, he leads his wife against Job. Um, I've heard way too many uh, preachers make the little joke here that like when Satan really wanted to mess Job up he killed all his kids but he left the wife um, that would be a rude thing for me to say before my wife of five months but, um, but I've heard that joke um, yeah you know I, I mean it's pretty straightforward what happens here and the way Job responds lets us recognize that he saw it as she was really saying, hey, why don't you just go ahead? And in a sense, she, she's going to tie into that same doctrine of divine retribution, right? Because apparently she believes, hey, I don't know what's going on here, but why don't you go ahead, let go of your integrity, curse God, and then he'll probably finish the job. She, she tied in. Even though she knew Job was a good guy, even though she knew Job had integrity, she still felt like, well, if Job will really curse God, then, then direct punishment will come. Then God will go ahead and, and finish him off. Um, it's interesting that the, the um, words there that say curse God, it's actually a euphemism. It's kind of a sarcastic expression. It, the words themselves actually mean bless God. But in context, we know, and, and that shows up a lot of other places in the Old Testament too. But, um, you know, just like we might say bless your heart to somebody and mean something very different. Well, she was saying, why don't you just bless God and go ahead and die. Um, it, it, it meant curse God. Um, even, um, yeah, remember too, that she had lost her kids and she had lost her property. And in many ways she had lost a husband. I mean, here he is covered in boils doing, you know, really, really sad, rightly so. Um, so it's not like this wasn't suffering for her too. Um, one other thing that I wanted to um, throw out there is there's um, in, in that amazing passage where Job says, and I don't, yeah, I don't have it here, but um, where Job says, the Lord is given and the Lord is taken away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. We sing that song that says, blessed be your name. We talk about blessing the Lord or blessing the Lord's name a lot. And yet we may not know where it, what it means. What it basically means is, and what some of your translations may even say is, let the name of the Lord be praised. The word bless actually is connected to a word or is the same word that means kneel. So if you think about blessing the Lord's name, it's kneeling before God. It, when, when, it, you know, when you talk about kneeling before his name, you're really just saying kneeling before him, before his identity, before who he is. Um, we're not enhancing it. When we talk about blessing God, we're not saying that we actually provide a blessing to God in the same way that he provides blessings to us. But we are responding, we are kneeling before his praiseworthiness. So when it says bless God, uh, the picture is somebody kneeling before God or, or saying, I'm kneeling before that name, I'm responding to everything he's done. Um, I think it's important to read the book of Job with the end in mind. We need to read these the speeches only by knowing what's going to happen. And so if you'll turn way back to chapter 42, I want to make sure we remember what happens with Job.
um, you can glance through that. We'll read that later on this morning. But um, these are these are the high points. If you'll notice in verses one through six, Job confesses and repents. Then the Lord rebukes three of the friends. And then we find out that Job's wealth and many of his relationships return. He gains more kids. Not, you know, they're not the same kids that, that passed away. But they are new children and new people. And it's clear by the end um, that Job is doing pretty well. And the last verses of Job say, And after this, Job lived 140 years and saw his sons and his sons' sons for generation. And Job died an old man and full of days. So we know that things turn out well for Job, but we also know some other stuff. What do, what do we learn from chapter 42 that will help us the rest of the book? Any ideas? God redeems him. So God's going to step in at some point and say... I'm going to make this okay. Like, I'm going to bring things back to where they were. Another thing it shows us is that Job's getting something wrong. That, yeah, we have the verse in chapters 1 and 2 that says Job didn't sin up to that point. But if God's going to come in in the first of that chapter and really bust on Job a little bit, um, and, and in fact, for four chapters before that too, the, and Job has to repent and confess, we know Job's messed up somewhere along the way. So as we read these, we can't read them with the assumption that Job is right and the friends are wrong. But we also see that God rebukes three of the friends and he rebukes them harder. He tells them, hey, you haven't said what's right about me like, like Job did. And Job actually has to go sacrifice for those friends. So we know the friends are getting something wrong too. Um, Remember what I said about can the Bible re, uh, record wrong ideas? Well, apparently it does somewhere in the middle because as we read about Job and what he said and we read about the friends and what they said, we know that not everything was completely accurate. So let's talk about those speeches. Um, like I said, 3 through 37. This is going to be the arc that it kind of goes through. Job's going to open by voicing his angst. Then the three friends are going to respond to Job, while intermittently Job's going to speak against them, but also question God. Like I said before, this isn't usually a direct rebuttal. It's not like Job's going to say, well, Bildad, you said this, but here's what's true. Or Zophar, here's what you said, but here's how I see it differently. Then Job is going to close with a variety of speeches there at the end. And then the new observer, Elihu's going to speak up at the very end. So let's jump in. Uh, as I, did I lose it? I think we lost mine. Um, let me use this. If you want to check to make sure it's... That's still working. Cool. Did I pull it out? They just like us. It's not so much so y'all can hear. It's They're trying to record these. And so... Uh, Hello? Okay. I'll use this. No problem. Um, I, uh, well, it's fine. I'll give it to you in the break. Um... As we go through this, I'm not going to read every little thing that shows up on a slide. Um, the verses are meant to illustrate what is happening there, but um, you know you can read them. And again, the goal is for you to read this book when we all get done. Um, in chapter three, which is just a really powerful chapter, if you want to start somewhere, I mean, you know, read one and two, and then jump right into three. Job's really going to voice his angst. He's really facing a tough time, and so. Um, 
it's really important that we get that. Um, what one of the commentators said was, with this speech before us, we cannot over-intellectualize the book, but must always be reading it as the drama of a human soul. Chapter 3 doesn't let us just take this as an, as an exercise in theory about God or an exercise in the problem of evil or even an exercise in how to suffer. We have to read it saying Job went through the ringer, and, and chapter 3 does a good job of setting that up. Then the friends start. Um, this, this picture shows one specific thing that Eliphaz is going to say that he, that he got something in a vision, but I thought it was a cool picture. A lot of the paintings I'm using are from a guy named William Blake. Not all of them, but he did some cool illustrations about the book of Job. And so I enjoyed finding those and using those. Um, and they were all on Wikipedia, which was really helpful. Um, so here's what the friends are going to do. Um, you've got in your reading notes chapter by chapter sort of, hey, here's some notes you might want to know as you go along. That's not what I'm going to do this morning. This morning, I'm going to talk about overarching themes that come up. And so if you are keeping notes on the notes page or, or just on your own, these are going to be more introductory things to look through with example verses. But they show up all through the friend's speeches. I'm not picking them just because I found them in one or two verses. Generally, they're, they're what's taking place throughout the chapters. The first is you're going to clearly see through those friends' speeches uh, the doctrine of divine retribution. That the friends are going to say, we don't even know what you did, but you must have done something or you wouldn't be facing this suffering. They're going to say things like, as I've seen, those who plow iniquity and sow trouble reap the same. If you're pure and upright, surely then he will rouse himself for you and restore your your rightful habitation. And on and on they're going to go, and they're, they're just going to say, hey, you're suffering, even your children are suffering because of what you've done. Remember, my definition of the doctrine of divine retribution was a dogmatic assumption that our circumstances are automatically connected to our deeds. It's the idea that God's tied to a contract that he needs to keep up his end of the bargain. Another thing that's really key to know about the friends is that they are offering some, much of the time, good principles, but they're wrongly applied. This is one of the first things I remember really finding significant as I studied the book of Job, because like I said at the beginning about something else, I'm a, I'm a black and white kind of guy. I like knowing something is either right or wrong. Well, with the friends, it's not that easy. They are often spouting some pretty good principles, but they're they're assuming that they're true in Job's case when they're not. So they'll say things like, blessed is the one whom God reproves, therefore despise not the discipline of the Almighty. That's true. We could say that to a fellow Christian and be absolutely honest about it. Behold, God will not reject a blameless man, nor take the hand of evildoers. What these guys say is so right that Paul was able to quote Eliphaz in 1 Corinthians 3.19, and this is for, from 1 Corinthians, for the wisdom of this world is folly with God, for it is written, he catches the wise in their craftiness. Eliphaz was absolutely right in that truth, but he wasn't right in applying it to Job. You're also going to see in, these first round, in this first round of speeches 
a lot of condemnation, but without evidence. You'll even see the word if a lot. It should happen even more if they were being honest. But they'll say things like, if your children have sinned against him, he has delivered them into the hand of their transgression. That's not only um, a big if, but it's also really harsh. His children had died, and he's saying, well, they must have messed up. They must have done something to get this sort of thing. And there's lots of verses through there where they're condemning Job. Now, later in the book, they'll even pick that up. They'll be a lot harsher and harsher. Um, but even from the very beginning, they're, they're bringing it pretty well against Job. But they, don't, they just don't have any evidence. They're assuming things that we know, because we've seen behind the scenes, just aren't true. Finally, something interesting that happens in these, in these first round of speeches is that they're going to appeal to higher authorities. Just like a lot of us would, if you're trying to make your case, you're going to you know, throw out you know, the kitchen sink, and you're going to say things like Eliphaz did. A spirit glided past my face. The hair of my flesh stood up. It stood still, but I could not discern its appearance. A form was before my eyes. There was silence. Then I heard a voice. And he goes on to talk about what he learned. So he, he felt that he had this sort of spiritual experience that led him to these truths that he's going to share with Job. Bildad, on the other hand, says, For inquire, please, of bygone ages, and consider what the fathers have searched out. Will they not teach you and tell you and utter words out of their understanding? Again, just like something we might do, but he's saying, hey, haven't you talked to your elders? Haven't you talked to people who've been around longer than you? They're going to tell you the same thing, that because you're facing suffering, you must have done something wrong. And yet we know that's not true, but they're going to appeal to those authorities. So that's what happens with the friends in 3 through 14. Now, in between their various speeches, Job's going to speak up, and he's going to face his frenemies, um, these guys who you know, were friendly for about four verses there in chapter two and then have really uh, not been as, you know, it would have been nicer if they just kept quiet. For, you know, they sat around for a week not saying anything. Would have been nice if they'd kept that up. But he's going to talk back. By contrast with the friend's single-minded and static positions, Job's mind is confused, flexible, and experimental. In every one of his 11 speeches, he adopts a different posture, psychologically and theologically. Job, like we've already said, will get some things wrong. But at least he's not as dogmatic as the friends are, because in this case, their dogma is very, very wrong. Job just hasn't done anything to deserve or to earn um, this, this punishment from God and, and from, you know, from Satan, but they don't even know Satan's involved at all. But he's also um, confused. He's willing to admit that. He's willing to say he doesn't know what's going on. One of the things that Job brings up a lot is just how terrible um, these supposed comforters really are. That over and over through these passages, he's going to say, you know, things like, my brothers are treacherous as a torrent bed, as torrential streams that pass away. They just cut through the earth. They just flood everything. They're, you know, they're having sort of this scorched earth policy against Job, trying to get him to repent for sins that he knows he hasn't committed. And he says, constantly, you know, you're just getting it wrong. You're getting it wrong. You're not being helpful. You're being rude. Um, he's not going to run away with all his boils. So he just has to sit there and take it. He talks a lot too in these passages about how difficult it is to prove his innocence, um, both to God and to people around him. 
Uh, this is an example of where he talks about having to prove his innocence against God. How then can I answer him? Choosing my words with him. Though I am in the right, I cannot answer him. I must appeal for mercy to my accuser. If I summoned him and he answered me, I would not believe that he was listening to my voice. For he crushes me with a tempest and multiplies my wounds without cause. He will not let me get my breath, but fills me with bitterness. If it is a contest of strength, behold, he's mighty. If it is a matter of justice, who can summon him? Though I am in the right, my own mouth would condemn me. Though I am blameless, he would prove me perverse." That early on in the book, Job has the posture of, I'd really love to talk about this to God, but I don't see how I could even prove my innocence to him. Uh, He'll change his tune a little bit later on. He also says he can't do it with the friends. You know, they've talked and talked and talked, and he says back to them, behold, my eye has seen all this. My ear has heard and understood it. What you know, I also know. I'm not inferior to you, but I would speak to the Almighty, and I desire to argue my case with God. As for you, you whitewash with lies, worthless physicians are you all. Oh, that you would keep silent, and it would be your wisdom. Uh, I love that verse. That's a, that's a memorizable one um, for us who want to comfort. Um, oh, that you would keep silent, and it would be your wisdom. Um, sometimes that's really, really the best thing we can do. And it certainly was when the friends didn't know what they were talking about. Um, there's a part in here in, in chapter nine where it says, God will not turn back his anger. Beneath him bowed the helpers of Rahab. Wanted to bring that up. It's, it's good to talk about because there'll be some other creatures that God, or, uh, that God himself actually talks about later in the book. Who or what is Rahab? Well, elsewhere in the Bible, Rahab refers to Egypt. It's sort of a nickname for Egypt. It could mean that here, especially, you know, if it's being written later, but Job at that point wouldn't have had much dealings with, like Job himself wouldn't have had much dealings with Egypt, and so it probably doesn't mean that here. Um, It is very likely either a reference to some legendary but real force that had existed in times past, some kind of sea monster, some kind of thing that, that we just don't have today, or it could be a mythological reference. And, and that's tricky for us. We don't like seeing mythology show up in our Bible. Um, and yet there are places it does. Like even when God uses a nickname for Egypt like Rahab, he's getting that nickname from their sort of mythological customs. That doesn't mean that God's endorsing mythology. Because remember, the Bible is literature. That just like you or I might use a fable to make a point, or we might um, call on an example that's familiar to all of us because we all would have learned about this, you know, this ancient story or this interesting thing in school. Well, God or Job or and the author of Job can all do that. Um, one of the most interesting places this sort of happens is in Acts 17, when Paul is preaching to, um, you know, on, the, on Mars Hill, and he says, um, you know, you've got this statue to this unknown God. Um, let me tell you who that God is. So he's sort of using their mythology against them. And then twice he quotes some very pagan sort of literature to make his point about God. 
These guys would have been well-versed in sort of all this mythology. So to say that the helpers of Rahab in this sort of mythological story bowed before God isn't the same as, isn't necessarily saying, hey, this is exactly what happened in history. It's a poetic thing in a poetic book. Um, But again, it could refer to something real, like a real sea monster. It could refer to the sea itself. Um, Whatever the case Rahab tends to represent pride or chaos, and Job there is is rightly saying that um, that chaos and pride and you know all those things kind of bow before the Lord. So I know that's tricky. We can talk more about it if we need to, but um, but it shows up. So I wanted to talk about it. Then later in this section in three through fourteen, Job turns the corner that he begins to address God more and more directly. So you see here in chapters 13 and 14 are where these verses come from. And he says things like, I will argue my ways to his face. He says, I've prepared my case. He says directly to God, call and I will answer or let me speak and you reply to me. Look away from him, speaking of just himself, look away from Job and leave him alone that he may enjoy like a hired hand his day. He's saying to God, I've got my case all set up, or how about you just leave me alone? That he really turns the corner there and begins to directly um, refer to God. Next up, we're going to... we're going to hit the friends, um, but I think this would be a great place for just a short intermission. Let's catch our breath. Instead of doing one like the other classes, I think we're going to do two shorter ones. So five to seven minutes, you are more than welcome to grab coffee, grab a bite to eat, ask a question off the record, um, whatever you want to do. And we will, but really like aim for five minutes if you can. I use this one from on, so. Okay, well, I don't like that for you, so let's make sure we get this. And if not, we'll get you another one. Um, What? We need more than this. Yeah, and give it to me, I'll take care of it. So I've switched to Diet Coke for Catherine Swartzening. I know we have her, there's one person here, so maybe. If you'll email, can you email that to me? That's right. Cool. Can I help you with that? Hello, hello. Test. Yeah. 
good. Cool. Hold on one second. I need to send these notes. Oh, I thought maybe yeah. you didn't like it. No, I was going to that one. I was going to go look for one. I never saw it. Take a break. Thank you for that. Thank you so much. She's a poet. You can't find God wants yeah. us to become holy. Sure, sure. We're not holy, but it's in reference to as he was as a holy man because not only Jesus was the holy man, but yeah. through Jesus. Well, in the Bible, the word holy really fundamentally just means separate. Um, that that's really what the word kind of foundationally means. Now, obviously, to be separate, and the way the Bible uses it, it means be righteous, be upright. But yeah, when it talks about God being holy, it's talking about Him being other than us in everything, but including in His perfections and His perfect morality and all that. We're in, we're called to be holy too. Yeah, exactly. And That's but for us, but how is He like? Yeah, well, when the Bible uses it, it doesn't mean that we're going to, on this side of eternity, be all the way holy. 
But when it talks about people being holy or people being blameless or people being upright, it means that they are, in general, walking with the Lord in a way that, that separates themselves from evil. But it doesn't mean perfect. Perfect would be the word that means perfect. Holy doesn't actually mean perfect. Sometimes we use those interchangeably. But when it's what I'm saying. It's yeah. Like, it's kind of, because it would say, God is holy. You would say, Job is holy. Then it's like a slam on the word holy. Why use the word That is a great point. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Right. Well, it's like, it's like, it's basically, to me, it felt like, I know we're holy through Jesus. Right. How? That's a great question. That's like slamming the word holy. Well, I'd say more it's it's the best word we can come up with for God. And God obviously uses it for himself. But when he says, be holy as I am holy, we know from the rest of scripture, he knows we can't be holy as he is holy. But we can, that better be our aim. And I've heard it described well as a life of holiness is more about where I'm aiming than it is about what I'm doing right now. Now, obviously, if I'm if I'm aiming well right now, I'll be doing pretty well too. Um, but I'm gonna mess up because that's because I'm a person, you know. So, but that's a great question. Yeah, it's tricky. But obviously, we recognize from the whole context when God says He's holy, He's meaning I'm separate from you. But I would say God is holy and perfect. I wouldn't treat those as synonyms. Um, you know, but even Jesus said, be perfect, therefore, as your heavenly Father is perfect. In Matthew 5, well, in the same way, or maybe 6, but in the same way, he knows we're not going to be perfect yet. And yet, that's his call. That's the whole problem. We've all sinned and fall short of the standard, which is perfection. So... Yeah, great question. Yeah, glad you showed up, Adam. Is there anything that doesn't have a note section or set Anybody here that doesn't have a note section? Hello?
Okay, everybody, we'll go ahead and get started again. Thank you all for moving fast on the intermission. Um, You've, uh, in the Doctrine of Divine Retribution, you've been rewarded another intermission later because you uh, acted successfully in this one. Um, No, really, thank you all. Um, Any questions before we jump into rounds two and three? Any questions so far? I had some some cool questions in the middle, but um, like in the intermission, but is there anything y'all would want to ask at this point? Yeah, 12 seconds. seconds. Got to wait. My teacher who taught me that did say, like, you're allowed to sort of talk like I'm doing right now as people sort of formulate their questions, so it makes it a little less awkward. Uh, Cool. Well, again, feel free. I I want there to be questions in there. I know I'm keeping a pretty steady clip, but um, but I'm I'm glad to answer, and I want to scratch where you itch, I'd say. Uh, Friends in rounds two and three. Here's an overview of kind of how these three friends, Eliphaz, uh, Zophar, and Bildad, or Eliphaz, Bildad, and Zophar in that order, um, are going to go about it. They're going to do two more rounds of speeches, although you'll see in a second um, that the third round is really even kind of cut off, and, and I think there's some significance there. A lot of it's going to be more of the same. I mean, they are going to hit some of these same points, only maybe turn that um, volume up a little bit. Um, Do you not know this from of old, since man was placed on the earth, that the exulting of the wicked is short and the joy of the godless but for a moment? That's the doctrine of divine retribution. And they hit that again in rounds two and three. Will you keep the old keep to the old way that wicked men have trod? They're assuming, just like in the first round, it's condemnation without evidence. They're assuming Job has done something wrong, and they're going to condemn him for it. And then finally, I will show you, hear me, and what I have seen I will declare, what wise men have told without hiding it from their fathers. And then he goes on, so they're still appealing to authority. They're bringing all their rhetoric, all their argumentation skills to bear on Job here. They also end up being a little sensitive at this point in the um, in all these speeches. What do you know that we do not know? What do you understand that is not clear to us? Why are we counted as cattle? Why are we stupid in your sight? And then one of them says, I hear censure that insults me, and out of my understanding a spirit answers me. Do you not know this from of old since man was placed on the earth? That they're feeling a little sensitive at this point because Job has been speaking against them um, throughout, kind of interspersed throughout these speeches. There is a growing exasperation. One of the best examples is um, Eliphaz right there, and this is the beginning of these rounds of speeches in chapter 15. Um, and, And just one thing to point out, as you're reading, like if you ever want to quick kind of remind yourself what these different speeches are about, the first few verses of each chapter can often tell you a lot. That they'll kind of intro what they're going to say before they go into it. Eliphaz sort of does that here. Then Eliphaz the Temanite answered and said, Should a wise man answer with windy knowledge and fill his belly with the east wind? Should he argue in unprofitable talk or in words with which he can do no good? But you are doing away with the fear of God and hindering meditation before God. For your iniquity teaches your mouth, and you choose the tongue of the crafty. Your own mouth condemns you and not I. Your own lips testify against you. So at this point, when Job has already said quite a bit, Eliphaz is now bringing his own words against him. And note there, right in the middle, he says, you are doing away with the fear of God and hindering meditation before God. They felt that when Job was saying, no, no, as far as I know, I'm really innocent, 
that he was doing away with their understanding of God, that he was challenging what they felt was true about God. For an innocent, for a man who's suffering to say he's not wicked flies in the face of that doctrine of divine retribution, but that was the doctrine they felt was rightly, you know, a right understanding of God. So he even says, you're challenging right religion by, by everything you're saying. Then they start running out of steam. So this exasperation is growing. And then toward the very end, this is actually the last chapter of the friend's speeches is in chapter 25. So Eliphaz talks in the whole of the book. So Eliphaz talks, then Bildad talks, then Zophar talks. And then Eliphaz talks, then Bildad talks, then Zophar talks. Then Eliphaz talks. And all of those are something like a chapter long in our Bibles then this is the last speech and this is all that's there. Listen to the exasperation, but then listen to how he's just kind of in a sense running out of steam. He knows he doesn't have any more to say or that he thinks Job won't listen. Then Bildad the Shuhite answered and said, dominion and fear with God. He makes peace in his high heaven. Is there any number to his armies? Upon whom does his light not arise? How then can man be in the right before God? How can he who is born of woman be pure? Behold, even the moon is not bright and the stars are not pure in his eyes. How much less man who is a maggot and the son of man who is a worm? And then he just drops the microphone and heads off the stage. That that's all that Bildad has to say. And then Zophar doesn't even talk. Zophar doesn't even have a third speech. So these guys clearly are kind of angling downhill. Um, it's short and it's vitriolic. Well, in these same chapters, Job is further arguing his case. And he's progressing too. That he's... he's you know, angling up. He's getting more angry at them and even at God. For one thing, he's getting angry at them. Miserable comforters, he says. I've heard many such things. Miserable comforters are you all. He says, bear with me and I will speak. And after I have spoken, mock on. When we were uh, having our little teacher meeting this morning, um, with the different teachers of the different classes, uh, one of the girls from one of the other classes pointed out that like, if she was teaching the book of Job, she'd be heavy on the theme of sarcasm. It does come up a lot that Job and some of the other ones will say things like this. If you've spoken, mock on. And whether you want to call it sarcasm, if you think sarcasm is always, always wrong, you wouldn't want to call it sarcasm. But even the way God speaks sometimes is definitely a um, to-the-point kind of tone. And he makes a point um, in in what he says. But anyway, more of what Job says against the friends, how, how you have helped him who has no power, how you have saved the arm that has no strength, how you have counseled him who has no wisdom and plentifully declared sound knowledge when we know Job doesn't really feel that way. So he's getting grumpier about the friends. He also, this is a one, there is, there are a few places in this part of the book where Job answers the friends in sort of a direct sense. He spends a lot of time talking just straight at God or about God, but he does go after the friends a little bit, and some of that's in the printed notes that you have. But um, for instance, in 19.2, so at the beginning of his speech there, Job says, how long will you torment me and break me in pieces with words? Well, that may very much be meant to reflect what Bildad has just said the chapter before and how Bildad spoke back in chapter 8, too, Because in both places, Bildad says, how long, Job, will you blah, blah, blah? How long will you blah, blah, blah? And so Job hits back with a how long. 
Bildad in 18.8 says, For the wicked man is cast into a net by his own feet, and he walks on its mesh. But then in the very next chapter, Job says, Know then that God has put me in the wrong and closed his net about me. So where Bildad has said, Hey, a wicked man casts his own net, Job says, Not in this case. God's the one who laid the net for me. Um, And then uh, another thing that Job says in 21, just as an example of a lot that he's doing in these chapters, how often is it that the lamp of the wicked is put out, that their calamity comes upon them? So the friends are all saying, hey, doctrine of divine retribution, when you mess up, when the wicked mess up, it doesn't last long for them. But, But Job says, look, I've looked around. How often does that really happen? How often are the wicked, you know, put out? How how often does their calamity come right upon them? Now, we may not completely agree with Job's stance either, but he is directly arguing against the friends. Another place, and, and this kind of on that last point, how he goes. He says, one, like one person, dies in his full vigor, being wholly at ease and secure. His pails full of milk and the marrow of his bones moist. Another dies in bitterness of soul, never having tasted of prosperity. They lie down alike in the dust, and the worms cover them. Behold, I know your thoughts and your schemes to wrong me. For you say, where is the house of the prince? Where is the tent in which the wicked lived? So he says, I know that you've got this doctrine. But have you not asked those who travel the roads and do you not accept their testimony that the evil man is spared in the day of calamity, that he is rescued in the day of wrath? He says, hey, you're going to appeal to authorities? I've got some authorities too. And they've traveled far and wide and they know that there's wicked men who last a long time. We know that there's people who don't seem to get what's coming to them. And then one of the most famous passages in the middle parts of Job um, comes up, and uh, John's going to talk about that, but it's, it's chapter 19, and it's, it's really an interesting place. I think we lost that other microphone. No, 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 we got him back. Yeah. So this section, again, kind of as I was going through the book, this one kind of stood out to me a lot, because who here's heard the famous worship song, My Redeemer Lives? You've probably sung that here at Watermark. You've done some of those things. So I came across that, and I immediately thought, wait, is he, is he talking about Jesus right here? Because that's kind of that same mindset. If you remember, we have knowledge and understanding Job didn't have at that time. The progressive revelation of God coming, fulfilling everything he said he would through Christ, his son, everything like that. But Job, he didn't know that at the time. So right here, Job, he is crying out to his Redeemer, but in that sense, he's directly crying out, to God in the same way you and I, we might cry out to Christ. But in that too, there's some interesting thoughts here. As we look at that word redeemer, when I kind of look that up in the Hebrew and what that means, it's in reference most directly to a kinsman redeemer. Some of you that might have read the book of Ruth, that's probably one of the, the best examples there, where a kinsman redeemer was someone that had both the right and the responsibility of vindicating you. So in this moment, Job, again, he's going in all these conversations, the dialogues, everything like that with these three friends where they're saying, hey man, you deserve this. And he's saying, no, I don't. If, if I could plead my case with God, I'd be able to show you that. So this is Job claiming right here, God and God alone is the only one that can vindicate me. He's the only one that can declare my innocence before you. But man, I'm in pain. I'm covered in boils. I got shards of clay that I'm using to scrape my body. I'm probably going to die soon. But even in my death, I believe then God will vindicate me. So it says here, For I know that my Redeemer lives, 
And at the last, he will stand upon the earth. And after my skin has been thus destroyed, yet in my flesh I shall see God, whom I shall see for myself, and my eyes shall behold, and not another. So again, just another quick recap. Job right here, as much as I'd like to read into it, and a lot of people do think there might be almost not a direct uh, allusion, but almost a slant allusion to Christ and things like that. And this moment, he's crying out to God. He's crying out to God and saying, hey, you're the only one that can set me free. You're the only one that can declare my innocence. Now, how this translates then to our life is how we now recognize it's through Christ and through Christ alone that we're set free on that. Job, him recognizing, hey, God is sovereign and God has set it in motion. And that's kind of the way he views it. Yeah, got a question over here. Who's to say it's not a prophetic utterance? Yeah, I think that, there's certainly people that hold to that. And there are a lot of scholars that would claim that. I think the main reason that it could, wouldn't be a prophetic utterance is, again, Job right here, in that setting, his lack of understanding, potentially, of that Christ figure to come, but then even again, that Hebrew word in the breakdown of kinsman redeemer. And where else we see that? You see that same example used in, for example, uh, one of the reasons that a lot of people might think it could be prophetic in some nature is God being described as the redeemer of Israel as he brings them out of Egypt. And we now know how God pulls them out of Egypt. That's the same thing where you and I are enslaved in bondage and everything like that. And God, through Christ, pulls us out. So that's where you can get the direct illusion. So I don't want to take away from that, but it's not necessarily concrete hard where everyone across the board says, he's talking about Jesus. I think that's definitely something to consider, but not something you can firmly stand on. Does that help answer your question? Um, okay. Any other questions on that? It may not be a prophetic utterance in your opinion, but it's definitely the resurrection, which is prophetic. So How so? Your skin being destroyed, your body being wasted away, you're the decay, but yet in your flesh you can see God. Yeah. So, that's prophetic. No, of course. And I think that's, again, that same illusion of what is to come. What he's saying there is... This could be a direct allusion to the resurrection. How your body will decay, but even in that, you will see God and you'll stand before. So is there truth in that? Certainly. But again, just going back to you, can you make that direct claim that, hey, this is to Jesus. This is to through the resurrection. This is God saying, hey, here's what's coming. I'm even going to kind of like speckle or pepper a little bit of that here in the book of Job. Is there some truth in that? Absolutely. Yeah. If, if you assume for a moment that it is prophecy, there's nothing in that passage that is contrary to the uh, contrary to the scripture in, in its whole. So, you know, from Genesis two and three, people have known of the coming redeemer. Yeah, absolutely. And so, to I mean, I guess I have a bias that I've always felt it's a it's a prophetic government, but uh, at the same time might not want to over-intellectualize something like that and try to explain it away from a, a translation and what, could, what Redeemer could mean to you. Yeah, anyway. and I think if, if, what he's... If there was something in that passage that, that could, be, could misrepresent the evolution of Scripture, yeah. then you could say, well, no, he doesn't mean the Christ, but I don't see anything there that is contrary to anything. Well, and one, one thing I'd, I'd just add on that, too, is it's, it's good to remember that 
there are times where, like John said, God sometimes is peppering things that even the authors themselves wouldn't have understood. Prophecy is a very specific part of Scripture where the prophets tended to know at least that in general they were prophesying, although even they didn't always know the full extent of what they meant. So it's not, I mean, Job is... There isn't a lot of reason from looking, you know, being true to the scripture and the passage and the context to think that Job actually was himself looking ahead to Christ, but it doesn't at the same time mean that Christ wasn't a fulfillment of this sort of passage. It's a tricky deal, and it's. No, yeah. Those are good questions. Yeah. But, uh, you know, I think of David, and I can't come up with specific examples. If you gave me time, I could, or Isaiah, and there are prophecies from both of them, sure. for example, that arguably they they would not have known right. sure. what God put in their mind yeah. Yeah. And just, it's good to remember that being faithful to scripture means going both ways. That's saying that it's no less faithful for, you know, to look and say, maybe he didn't know that that was going on or maybe, or maybe that's not exactly what was happening. Um, and then, it, but at the same time to say, but if that's what we believe scripture is saying, then that's what we want to be faithful about. And I think that's the exciting part too, where part of the main purpose and area of this class is to want to encourage you all to then go read it for yourself. We've got some recommended reading resources Benson will talk through to later, where even open up in a commentary, going through, taking a look at some of the evidence for, hey, is this prophecy or is this directly crying out to God? And you're right where, myself included, in theology, we tend to get ourselves into trouble when we cling to either one extreme or the other, even though at times it could be right. But seeing, okay, there's probably an illusion and some truth in both of these. And that's where the exciting piece where you guys get to go and kind of dig through and begin to piece it together for yourself. So, great questions. Keep asking things like that. So, any other questions on this text here or anything else there? Okay. And here, I'll give it right back to Benson. One other thing that's taken place... um here in uh, really all those rounds two and three of what Job is doing is that he really starts bringing his case, that he really starts saying, I'm going to speak to God in a way um, uh, really like a convicted man is going to speak to, um, to a witness even less than a judge. As for me as my complaint against man, why should I not be impatient? Job, Job says, I'm not mad at people. I have a problem with God and I'm going to bring my case. Today also my complaint is bitter. My hand is heavy on account of my groaning. Oh, that I knew where I might find him, that I might come even to his seat. I would lay my case before him and fill my mouth with arguments. This is this is the way Job progresses here at the end as he's sort of winding down too. He'll have some concluding chapters, but he's really saying, I want to bring my case to God. I demand to be heard. I'm going to step up and I've got to stand before. He knows that God is the arbiter, but he's demanding that God really come and listen to him. Then we hit chapter 28, and, and it seems to be, uh, you know, said by Job, and, but, it, but it's this amazing sort of interlude. As I was preparing for this class, um, one of the uh, commentators I was reading talked about how in the progression of this book, so Job has laid his case, and he's going to do some conclusions, but at this point in the book, there start to be some almost chances for us to be a little bit on the edge of our seat, that so Job has just stood up and he's just, you know, and all these friends have said all these things. We've got no response from God at this point in the book or at this point in the play, if you want to think about it like that. 
and we're ready for God to speak, and suddenly we've got this poem about wisdom. And then Job's going to say a little bit more, some really big stuff, and we're on the edge of our seat, we're ready for God to speak. And then this new guy comes in, who we've never heard from before. And so it's even interesting how this progresses here um, for us to really be drawn into this amazing story. Chapter 28 is one that, man, if we had time, I would love to just read through it. But it's, it really, it's just cool even when you realize like it describes like these mining practices and stuff. But it, the big point is, hey, men search out all these diamonds and gold and you know, precious stones and they, they rip up the earth, but they can't find wisdom. Or at least it's not nearly as easy to find as even those things are to find. Um, so that happens in 28. And then in 29 to 30, um, Job's really going to present his final testimony. In 29, and, and those are some pretty interesting chapters. Like if I was saying, hey, if you just want to read the cliff notes on Job, I would definitely include 29 through 31 in those because 29 is really straight up, hey, here's how I used to be. I was happy. I was holy all before this all happened. And then in 30, it takes the hard turn to say, um, things are rough now, and I'm scorned by all these same people who I used to bless by being holy and being kind and being, being good to them. And then chapter 31, um, and again, it'd be fun to walk through it um, because it's really interesting. If you, if you have your Bible open and want to just look at it, what you find out is that Job is marching through, really laying his case before the Lord. And he's saying, hey, if I had done this sin, then I'd deserve some, some rough treatment. Or if I'd done this sin, then I'd deserve some rough treatment. And if you walk through there, it's kind of fun to say, okay, what sin exactly is he talking about? Um, these are, this is kind of the sin list that he walks through there. Verses one through four, he's saying, um, if I, and that's another well-known verse is 31.1, I've made a covenant with my eyes. How then could I gaze at a virgin? What would be my portion from God above and my heritage from the Almighty on high? Is not calamity for the unrighteous and disaster for the workers of iniquity? Does he not see my ways and number all my steps? And so we see from verse one there, he's talking about lust. And then he talks about dishonesty. And he says, if I've been dishonest, God would have a right to punish me. If I've been covetous, God would have a right to punish me. If I've committed adultery, if I've oppressed people, if I've been miserly or unjust, unjust, if I've committed idolatry 24 through 28, it's kind of interesting. It, you know, it says, if I've made gold my trust or called fine gold my confidence, if I've rejoiced because my wealth was abundant or because my hand had found much, if I've looked at the sun when it shone or the moon moving in splendor and my heart has been secretly enticed and my mouth has kissed my hand, meaning like if I've seen the sun or I've seen the moon and I've done sort of this religion, you know, in some way bowed down to those things um, like the ancient people would have done, this also would be an iniquity, be iniquity to be punished by the judges, for I would have been false to God above. So he marches through this chapter, and the only place where he doesn't do it is in 35 through 37, when he says, Oh, that I had one to hear me. Here's my signature. Let the Almighty answer me. Oh, that I had the indictment written by my adversary. Surely I would carry it on my shoulder. I would bind it on me as a crown. I would give him an account of all my steps. Like a prince, I would approach him. So again, he's still saying, if only I could go before God, I could prove my innocence. Um, here's my signature. You know, let the Almighty come. Uh, come on and answer me. 
So that happens in 31. And then a guy named Elihu breaks in, and John's going to share about him. It's an interesting spot there in the text because we haven't heard of him and we won't hear of him after the fact, um, but he's in there for a good, like, six chapters. So, taking a look at taking a look at uh, Elihu here, we end up seeing, he ends up saying a lot of good things, so I can personally, not in the regard to saying good things, things like that, but relate to Elihu in a lot of ways. He's younger, as we'll see from the text, and he's a more passionate and at times kind of stubborn, head front guy, but he does have some good things coming in here. Let me just grab, I'll click for you. How do I go to that next slide? So here's this first text. This is where, start of chapter 32, they're introducing him. And we don't have quite as much time to read through all of this, but we'll try and pick out some of the high points. And again, what we're reading this for is just background on where he's come from. So one of the things that we see from this is he has been sitting and listening patiently while growing almost in angst as he's going through that, but he's been listening to the discussion of the other friends. So some of the things that we see in this is he is now mad at the friends for not being able to rightly respond to Job's comments. He has seen Job almost grow in what he's seen as kind of like this pride against God in some ways, and the friends haven't been able to properly dispute that. So he's grown and angry. Or excuse me, he's growing and he's angry. He's waited to speak. He has sat there and politely waited, allowed everyone else to go because he's younger than them. So that sign of respect to some of the things they're going through and talking about. And what he's doing now is this is essentially him stepping into the scene saying, hey, all you old guys, I kind of listened. I, I know I'm young. I know I haven't been around as much. I know I'm a little wordy, but it's my turn to talk now. So listen to me. And that's where he demands it. Therefore, I say, listen to me. Let me also declare my opinion. One interesting thing to note about Elihu in a lot of this, he's the first one to be introduced in the same way the son of, and I'm going to unfortunately butcher the pronunciation, Barakel the Bazutite, Bazutite, the family of Ram. So what he's saying, hey, this is my father, this is my tribe, this is my clan. So right there, he's making a direct connection to him being an Israelite, which we haven't yet seen that direct connection to some of the others there if you wouldn't mind going on that next one. Oh yeah so one of the things that stood out to him and this is the area where i kind of personally relate to him he's just a wordy guy he'll say one thing and then he'll say the exact same thing over again it's kind of like hey i don't know if you quite heard me that first time so i'm just gonna say it one more time so we see this show up in a couple different places for i'm full of words the spirit within me constrains me behold my belly is like wine that has no vent like new wineskins ready to burst. I must speak that I may find relief. I must open my lips and answer. So you see, it's taken him six lines to kind of say the exact same thing here. And then here's a good example. He repeats himself. But now, hear my speech, O Job, and listen to all my words. Behold, I open my mouth, and the, the tongue in my mouth speaks. So again, younger guy, excited, passionate, looking forward to his chance to speak. He's a little frustrated with what people have said before him. But in a lot of ways still, too, we see a lot of truth in some of the things that he brings up. Next slide, please. So here's kind of the shift. And one thing I'm going to talk to directly is his role. Why does he show up? Why does he just interrupt? Where did he come from? Why did God choose to make sure his part of that story is divinely preserved in a lot of it? And that's because he begins to introduce a few new things. One interesting note about Elihu 
His name means he is my God. A lot of you, I'm sure, have heard Elijah. Elijah simply means Yahweh, God of the God of the promise, God of the Old Testament, as he's often referred to, is my God. So that's just kind of building in again. He's going to almost introduce what God has to say in a lot of things. That first place that we see this section here, there they cry out, but he does not answer because of the pride of evil men. Job opens his mouth in empty talk. He multiplies words without knowledge. Right here, um, what he's saying, just making sure on some of these things that he's talking about, where... Job, he's almost pointing out, hey, man, you're being pretty verbose in some of these things. You're making these statements that may not necessarily be directly true. Like, what are you doing? Who are you to cry out, question, and demand response from God? Who is it to you in a lot of those things? We won't go through and read all these just because we've got some time. But some of the other points that he kind of, another theme of his that he begins to introduce is that suffering could almost be an act of mercy rather than punishment from God. Which again, going with divine retribution, that theme going through, that's a new idea. That's something that hasn't necessarily seen yet, where he, again, begins to then bridge the gap between the arguments of the three friends and then what God's going to begin saying in chapter 30, 38 there. Another point he kind of brings up, and we'll see a lot about this and Benson will talk about, is he begins to stress the sovereignty of God. That idea of God is God. You are not. Yes, God is good in allowing us to have questions, to seek understanding, to try and learn. But at the end of the day, God is God and you are not. Which is something Job, in his pain and his suffering, in a way that I can't begin to imagine what that would be like. He's asked these questions, but he's almost also grown in, God, give me answers. Not just do I have questions of you, but I demand a response. So he kind of begins to introduce that idea, who are you to demand a response from God? So again, think of Elihu in my mind, and there are a couple different views on his role in there, but he just bridges that gap from what the three friends were saying to then God's introduction in 38 there. Great. Cool. Thanks, John. When I was... um Younger, um, I would. We, we lived kind of out in the country, and when a big storm was kind of rolling in, like the kind of storm that rolls in, not just the one that where it starts raining a little bit. Uh, and so the sky's all dark, and it's you know I can look out across our pasture and kind of see it coming in. I would, when that was happening, I would often go out on our trampoline and I'd open up the Book of Job and I'd read uh, chapter thirty-seven, which is still Elihu's part, but it really does. I mean. You know, John talked about how this is a shift to a focus on God, and it's just an incredible passage that sets the stage for God to appear, talking about a whirlwind, talking about a storm rolling in. And it was just a really cool way to kind of set up for God breaking into this story. Remember, the author has set this up in a way that we really are, if we're first reading this, we're on the edge of our seat, and then God speaks. And I've even got a lot of passages on here that we won't be able to read all of or whatever. This is the kind of passage that if you are going to read it through or whatever, I'd encourage you to read it all in one chunk. Because God, in just blasting Job with all these questions and all these thoughts, really makes a point even in how he does it. That he has been silent this whole book, I mean, except for the first couple of chapters where we saw some stuff, but with Job and his friends, he's been silent, and then all of a sudden, when God comes, he brings it. 
Um, he's going to answer Job with over 50 questions, depending on how you count the number of questions and whether you count a double question as two or one or whatever. But um, over 50 questions in the first two chapters alone. He speaks of creation and he speaks of animals that are outside of Job's experience. And I'll talk more about that soon. Job repents once in the middle at chapter 40, but God just keeps going. Um, he has more to say. Uh, apparently, Job needed to be really um, uh, reminded of some things. And it is just an awesomely majestic four chapters. And especially once you understand what's going on here. Um, and I had understood some things. Like I said, I studied this a while back. But, um, but in getting to prepare for this, just seeing more and more of what God is doing here. Um, you know, it, it's really fun. And, and part of being faithful to the word isn't just reading it, but saying, hey, I want to understand what God is doing in the hair. So I'm real thankful for the resources that have helped me do that. This is how it starts. Then the Lord spoke to Job out of the storm. He said, who is this that obscures my plans with words without knowledge? Brace yourself like a man. I will question you and you shall answer me. And this is where the questions begin. Where were you when I laid the earth's foundation? Tell me if you understand. Who marked off its dimensions? Surely you know. Who stretched a measuring line across it? On what were its footings set? Or who laid its cornerstone? While the morning stars sang together and all the angels shouted for joy. And on and on. If we had had time, I'd thought about um, calling up the YouVersion Bible app on my phone that many of you may have. You can do this online too. Um, the ESV, at least, the voice recorder is a, a voice actor that I've actually seen do some other stuff named Max McLean. But he, him reading it, it is awesome. And so that'd be one way for you to really catch the import of this. It's not even a reading sort of chapter. It's a hearing it. Thinking about yourself as Job and thinking about God laying all these questions at your feet. He goes on and on. He says things like, can you bind the chains of the Pleiades? Can you loosen Orion's belt? Those are constellations. Again, you know, Kind of connecting a sort of mythology in here. These, you know, God speaking in poetic language. He's saying, look at the stars. Can you do anything with the Pleiades? Can you loosen that belt of Orion? Can you bring forth the constellations in their seasons and or lead out the bear with its cubs? And there in context, it's talking about Ursa Major, um, which is the Big Dipper too. And um, do you know the laws of the heavens? Can you set up God's dominion over the earth? On and on. Do you? And then, so he talks about kind of the natural creation or, you know, the whatever, the non-animal creation, and then he gets to the animals. Do you hunt the prey for the lioness or satisfy the hunger of the lions when they crouch in their dens or lie in wait in a thicket? Who provides food for the raven with its young, when its young cry out to God and wander about for lack of food? He's not saying, I mean, he does provide food for all these animals, but his bigger point here is, do you even know how these animals work? These are not animals. A lion was not something Job dealt with a lot. We know that he was like a shepherd and a cattle, you know, he, he had those kind of animals. These are wild animals, even a raven. He talks about the ostrich in a very cool chapter that basically makes fun of God's making fun of his own bird. The wings of the ostrich flap joyfully, though they cannot compare with the wings and feathers of the stork. She lays her eggs on the ground and lets them warm in the sand, unmindful that a foot may crush them, that some wild animal may trample them. She treats her young harshly as if they were not hers. She cares not that her labor was in vain, for God did not endow her with wisdom or give her a share of good sense. Yet when she spreads her feathers to run, and she laughs at horse and rider. Ostriches are fast, if you didn't know. And God's just saying, do you get ostriches? Do you get the constellations? 
Job, why are you darkening my counsel with words without knowledge? He talks about the horse, and I just get into that. Like at the end, it's he um, says that the blast of the trumpet, the horse snorts, aha, it catches the scent of battle from afar, the shout of commanders and the battle cry. God's just laying out, I mean, Think about God. If you could get God to be your zoo guide, how awesome would that be? And that's what he does here. He's, he's taking a tour, not of zoo animals, but of wild animals, saying, Job, you don't get this. Um, then Job repents, as I said in chapter 40. The Lord said to Job, will the one who contends with the Almighty correct him? Let him who accuses God answer him. Then Job answered the Lord, I am unworthy. How can I reply to you? I put my hand over my mouth. I spoke once, but I have no answer. Twice, but I will say no more. Then the Lord spoke to Job out of the storm. Brace yourself like a man. I will question you and you shall answer me just the way he began 39 or 38. And then God continues to speak. Here in this first, um, in this part of 40, like right then when when he speaks, he says, would you discredit my justice? Would you condemn me to justify yourself? Do you have an arm like God's and can your voice thunder like his? And he talks about like, can you take care of the wicked? Can you bring justice on the earth? If you're able to do my job, do it, but otherwise step back. And then he goes on to this animal or something, behemoth. Look at behemoth, which I made along with you and which feeds on grass like an ox. What strength it has in its loins, what power in the muscles of its belly. And then he goes on and he talks about this behemoth. We'll talk about what that is. Then in 41, um, oh, well, in 41, I'll tell you, he talks all about one creature called Leviathan. Can you imagine that? Like one chapter on how one creature glorifies God. It is a powerful, powerful four chapters. Let's look at the parts real fast. He answers him with questions, and we've already said that, that that is God's response. That Job has been, you know, not just begging, demanding an answer. And and God's answer to Job is going to be a bunch of questions for the most part. He looks at the natural world and animals. We kind of said that too. Um, Again, it's really key that these animals are wild, and I'll talk about why here in a little bit. But just notice, I mean, this was stuff outside of Job's own experience. God's saying, you may know a little bit about cattle, and you may know a little bit about sheep, but there's a whole world out there. Just like Job, you may know a little bit about this situation, you may know a little bit about your life, but there's a whole extra world that you know nothing about behind the scenes. And then we hit Behemoth and we hit Leviathan. This is another tricky spot. Like I said, this is a tricky book, even for scholars. That they look at these animals and they say, What is going on here? Who who are Behemoth and who are Leviathan? Well, one very, very common explanation is that they are actual animals. And that, that's probably where I lean to, is that, the, that God is being literal there about animals that we don't know the exact, the exact names of. A lot of people think behemoth is a hippopotamus. And a lot of people think leviathan is a crocodile. Now, if you take that explanation, which I said I do, the way God describes them is pretty poetic. 
Like he starts talking about fire coming out of a crocodile nostril, and we probably aren't meant to assume that that crocodiles used to work that way. It's God being very poetic. He's not lying because he's talking to Job, who would have at least known enough about the crocodile to know how God's describing it. Um, Same thing with Behemoth. There's also the the possibility that God here was very poetically, not in any way that would have confused Job, being poetic in in talking about these these animals that were made up. Just like he if he'd talked about a unicorn or something like that, we wouldn't assume oh a unicorn must exist if we're Job. We understand that God is bringing it to us. I know that's a little tricky. I know that's hard. That's not just me. That's a lot of you know. I mean, and and truly, people who absolutely believe the Bible is true from the beginning to the end would still say God may be employing some poetic license here that everybody recognizes, including Job, is poetic license. But they may very well be real animals, and and that's kind of where I lean. A big point of all that God's doing here is that he's saying these things that the world, much of it is not just beyond your experience, like oh, I've never been to the next town over, but I bet it's a lot like my town. It's outside your experience. It's it's wholly other than what you're used to. For instance, he says, who has cleft a channel for the torrents of rain and a way for the thunderbolt to bring rain on a land where no man is, on the desert in which there is no man, to satisfy the waste and desolate land and to make the ground sprout with grass? What God is saying there is that I put rain where nobody is. And that's a big deal here. That Job is demanding an answer because in his experience, this stuff doesn't make sense. But God's saying... I deal with a whole lot of things. I've got a whole lot of things on my calendar that never deal with man, that never deal with a person, that whether or not you understand it is not the point, that I'm going to put rain, and it seems, I mean, especially think about their time, like rain was so precious. And then you hear about God putting rain on land that doesn't affect man at all. It seems like such a waste, but that's what God's saying is, I've got all kinds of stuff going on that's outside of the lands where you dwell, and yet it pleases me to put rain over in America where nobody is yet, you know. Um, Is the wild ox willing to serve you? Will he spend the night at your manger? The list of animals that he goes through, they're wild animals. Job would have known about an ox. He wouldn't known much. He wouldn't have dealt much with a wild ox. And that's a big point of what God's doing here. And then, as I said in that other passage in 40, um, he, he says, look, if you can do my job, if you can look on everyone who is proud and bring him low and tread down the wicked where they stand, do it, Job. Because otherwise, you've got to let me do my job. Chrysostom, um, preacher, early, early church father, said, but God does not, and he's speaking specifically about behemoth and Leviathan here, but God does not create behemoth and Leviathan because his creation is oriented to provide what is useful to you. But one may ask, what is their use? We ignore what is the mysterious utility of these monsters. But if we want to take the risk of an explanation, we may say that they lead toward the knowledge of God. 
that Chrysostom said, look, God made creatures that, especially for Job, he never would have understood why in the world they're functioning that way. Why in the world they exist? Why are they around us? Or especially, why are they not around us? Like, isn't this universe man-centric? And God said, no, it's not. Uh, We'll talk about study resources later. Then we get to um, chapter 42. Go ahead and look over there. Again, we're not, we're not going to read every little verse, but I'll read it a little more in depth than we did the first time. Um, then Job answered the Lord and said, I know that you can do all things and that no purpose of yours can be thwarted. Who is this that hides counsel without knowledge? He even quotes God's um, confrontation against himself. Therefore, I have uttered what I do not understand, things too wonderful for me which I did not know. Here and I will speak, I will question, and you make it known to me. Again, quoting what God has just said to him. I've he- I had heard of you by the hearing of the ear, but now my eye sees you. Therefore, I despise myself and repent in dust and ashes. After the Lord had spoken these words to Job, the the Lord said to Eliphaz the Temanite, My anger burns against you and against your two friends, for you have not spoken of me what is right as my servant Job has. Now therefore take seven bulls and seven rams and go to my servant Job and offer up a burnt offering for yourselves. I mean, what a way to make a point, right? Like, I'm not going to just tell you you were wrong. You have to go get Job to sacrifice for you. Um... And my servant Job shall pray for you, for I will accept his prayer not to deal with you according to your folly. For you have not spoken of me what is right, as my servant Job has. He's already said that. He repeats himself to Eliphaz. So Eliphaz the Temanite and Bildad the Shuhite and Zophar the Namathite went and did what the Lord had told them. And the Lord accepted Job's prayer. And then the rest of the um, chapter, you know, my Bible subheads it, the Lord restores Job's fortunes, and that's what happens. It is important to note here, this isn't a reward in that sense. I mean, this book is not, hey, keep being holy, and eventually God will give you health and wealth. That's the whole point the book's against. But there is this chance that God says, I do, I want to bless Job, I want to restore to Job um, what, what Satan had taken away. And so he chooses to do that, but there's no sense from the book that we're supposed to read into that as, you know, the reward of being good, because the whole book has spent time telling us that it doesn't work that way. Uh, we're going to take our last quick little intermission, and then when we come back, we've got, you know, we'll have about 35 minutes to talk about, okay, so what? Like, what do we do with this amazing book? So really aim for about five minutes, and we will start before 1130. So try to aim for about 1128. See you soon. Okay, yeah. And it should. I mean, we must have just gotten one that hadn't been charged. Because right. I, I think they should last okay. But do you want to switch it out? What? No. Just oh, yeah, yeah. Cool, cool.
and watch me. Well, there you go. Yeah. Nice to have a support on the show. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Well, thanks for coming. Well, absolutely. Yeah. It has been. Um, I, I, I'm trying to think. It must have been four years ago. Yeah, it was a while back. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I'm thinking because we're in. Because, yeah, it may have been four. It was four six because it would have been because it would have been because of the night. So I'm thinking now it has to be four years ago. But, yeah, that's when I really first met that. Again, just with my medical job, most people think it was like a seventy-year-old chapter three. Because it's kind of like okay, that once you get one more Yeah, where is the Joe Yeah, and then just that red one. But it was hard. And I usually don't get what it is, but she does. Yeah, that's cool. Well, I think we're about to get started, but thanks for saying something. I'll be here after too. So okay. Okay, everybody, let's go ahead and get started. Up on the slide, you'll see the suggested resources. I will put this back up at the end just in case you want to write some of these down or whatever. So don't worry about getting them all down now. Um, but like when it's all, once it's all over, I'll put them up. But just to explain a little bit, these are five. There are other really good resources. How this, the two in the middle that are bolded, I'd say are probably for most of us in this room going to be my top suggestions. That one, the Tyndale Commentary by Anderson, is the one that's actually for sale out there. And it is one of the top commentaries for your kind of layperson or your minister, but not necessarily a scholar. So you're not going to be encountering Hebrew all the way through, which is nice for most of us. Um, and it's just a good, solid, short commentary. I'd encourage you, you know, it, every once in a while, as you're studying a very particular book of the Bible, it doesn't hurt to have a really strong commentary available for you and just keep it. And it's just, you know, over a lifetime, you can build up that little library. Um, but that, that Tyndale commentary set, the whole set's really, really good. But, um, but that Job one is, is a lot of the one that I first learned Job from. And it's the one, there's a few copies for sale out there, but Amazon is always your buddy on this kind of stuff. Um, whether you're kind of in that category of the layman or maybe a budding, you know, spiritual leader in some way or something, a minister, or you're a little bit more of a scholar, you would get a lot out of that, that Sitting with Job book. And actually, we'd come up with the title of our class before I found that book, but it is a great title for that book. It's a collection of a whole bunch of different articles on the book of Job. Some of them are taken from other commentaries. Some of them are taken from like Phil Yancey has some articles in there or at least one article in there so it's really valuable the other ones up there the top one is not one that I've read so it's a little bit harder to recommend that but that series is really sharp these are all guys who are going to be conservative about the text and 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 strong in, in believing like we would believe that it's true especially I'd say the top four the bottom one I'm not as sure about on that but the top one and so it's going to provide a lot of application for you so it would be a good one to look at if you're interested in that the next to last one 
in the New International Commentary, that's a little bit more scholarly. And so if you, you know, been to seminary or, or just willing to dig through a kind of an academic book, you might really enjoy that one. And then the bottom one is one of the most well-respected commentaries. That series is not always as conservative as we would be as a church or as I would be, but at the same time, it can have a really good amount. And I quote Klein's in a few places in the presentation because he just has some really amazing, very good things to say about the book of Job. So anyway, you can copy that down later if you want to. Um, We're going to talk about what we can get out of this book. Um, Remember, it's not just about suffering. As we talk, and I'm going to ask you all to throw some stuff out. One thing I'd say, remember, is we got about 28 minutes to finish this up. And finishing three minutes over isn't a big deal. Finishing 30 minutes over probably is. Um, But as I was even telling my wife as I was prepping this thing, our main hope is that we would give you the tools to read and understand Job. Jesus can show you everything else. Like God can, anything we talk about now is just gravy. And so we'll keep moving. So try not to, you know, preach a sermon or whatever if you have something to say, but throw that stuff in there. We'll get, we'll, you know, we'll cover what we can and, um, and, and just see what God wants to show us through this. I'd also say this. We're going to focus on what the book of Job shows us. Obviously, if you're talking about suffering or you're talking about the problem of evil or you're talking about any other topic, you want the whole counsel of Scripture. Of course we would talk about that. But... This is a class on the book of Job. And sometimes when we only say, hey, what are the top five verses in the Bible about a certain topic, we miss places that are a little harder to understand, but the amazing truth God wants to show us through those places. And so as we answer these questions, we're not generally talking about the whole of what the Bible says. John will have one section where he kind of needs to, but otherwise um, we're talking about what does Job say? First question up. Question for you. Did God answer Job's question? What did you notice about that? Not directly. Not directly. I'd agree with that. Uh, yeah, God, um, you know, as far as we know, Job never got the behind-the-scenes look. That we have no reason to believe that God ever knew about this sort of, uh, not really a wager, but but a setup between Satan and God. That we got Job died, as far as we know, not knowing that God was going to use a book about him to glorify himself for the rest of eternity. Job just knew he went through a really, really rough time, was accused by friends, and then at the end, he does know that God vindicates him. But he doesn't know about this whole behind-the-scenes thing. That's pretty amazing. Um, The other thing I noticed, like I put this question down, and then as I was thinking about it, I said, yeah, God didn't exactly directly answer the question, but Job didn't actually directly ask a lot of questions either. Like that our question, if we were Job, is why am I going through this? Job, who, like the friends, kind of probably started out with this sort of doctrine of divine retribution, that he, I mean, that's the whole thing. He's saying, God, you're unjust because I've followed you, I've been innocent, and now I'm facing this suffering. So he realized that the doctrine wasn't true, but he was still kind of trying to hold God to the contract. He wasn't asking why am I facing this as much as he was telling God he shouldn't be facing this. Um, 
I love this quote about just the mystery of God. The Lord's speeches demonstrate that God's sovereign cosmic power was not the retributive justice, as the friends had argued, nor the uncontrolled caprice, as Job had perceived it, of an impersonal cosmos, but rather the majestic omnipotence and mysterious creative genius of a personal and gracious God. That if you had to put a word on God's answer, that word might be mystery. And we don't like that. That's not satisfying to a human. But Job says, God, I shouldn't be suffering. What's the deal? And God says, mystery in a lot of ways. The way God's speeches work, um, I love this little outline. God's understanding, the way God works, God's control of the universe transcends a rule. It transcends the doctrine of divine retribution. That doctrine is not wholly incorrect as like a principle. We do know that God punishes the wicked. We do know that God um, helps and sustains and often blesses the righteous um, and blesses them in a lot of, he definitely blesses them and even sometimes blesses them in those kind of ways that Job and his friends were talking about. But, But it's not a rule for God. His understanding transcends any sort of rule. God's understanding transcends our need to understand. That's when God goes off on that creation motif. He's saying, you don't understand, you know, wild oxen. You don't understand ostriches. You can't enact justice on the wicked. You can't deal with the constellations. Um, You don't understand, and that's okay with me, God says. And God's understanding transcends accountability. That Job has this whole legal motif going on that he's trying to call God to account. And God says, I'm just not in that category. It's not just that, hey, who are you to hold me to account? It's like, Job, you don't even understand. Like, that doesn't even make sense in my case. Um, that, That God transcends that stuff. What was Job's sin? I've put some verses on the screen that may give us some clues there. But let me ask you, like, so we know... Job started off doing right. In all this, Job did not sin or charge God with wrong. But then there's some point between there and the end when God busts on Job. And then, however, he comes back and he tells the friends, you have not spoken to me what is right as my servant Job has. So we know Job messed up, not in the same category, I guess, as the friends, but what was his sin? Any thoughts on that? Pride, okay? What else? Complacency. Complacency. In what way? He was just happy to go along that things were going well. Cool. He was, he was good with the way things were going originally. What else? I think he assumed that God was going to give him an answer. He assumed that God would give him an answer. I like that. Good. Yeah. He assumed he had an answer for God. He says, I, I want to have my, my time. I want to have my place in court. Yeah. Yeah, that's a real good way to put it. Yeah, he had a he assumed he had a good answer to give God. He assumed that he could call God to account and that he'd have good things to say. Great. And I was gonna kinda of go off that he took his eyes off the Lord, but eyes off of his, you know, case, if you will. Like that's what he kept spending his time He in. focused on his case instead of focusing on God. Good. If I'm kinda of repeating y'all, it's so everybody can hear, but also they want me to do that for the recording stuff, so sorry if that's totally obnoxious. Any any other thoughts? I had one that kind of tied in the first couple of chapters with the same motivation. So that is uh, the initial problems were the Sabians attacked the Chaldeans and they 
uh, attack. Uh, the house wasn't strong enough. He never blamed any of those entities. Huh, it was yeah. Always, like, it wasn't like, oh, I should have built it stronger, or you know, he, he wasn't complaining about just the Sabian attacking him. Yeah, he never looked at his own faults, or even at uh, the Sabians' faults, or the other guy, you know, the other causes' faults. Yeah, he always looked at it as though God was in control. Yeah, and so he had his um, argument to God. He didn't just have the earthly perspective of yeah being mad at. Yeah, he definitely understood God's sovereignty, but it also led him to get mad at God who let these things or caused these things to happen. Yes, sir. Well, it occurs that uh, Job was uh, happy to experience the blessings of God and numerous children and wealth and presumably a happy, healthy life. And he accepted that, possibly considering that God was giving him that because of his righteousness. Mm -hmm. Uh, but then he wasn't willing to accept from God in his sovereignty, uh, decided to withdraw those things. Yeah, that he was, and kind of like she was saying with complacency, he was good with uh, everything God had done and probably did have some touch of that doctrine of um, divine retribution going on where he assumed it was because he was a good guy, and then when God took it away, he couldn't handle it. Early in chapters 1 and 2, he seems to handle it okay, but obviously some bitterness creeps in in the speeches. There's a lot of ways to think about this. I think every, everything everybody said was good. You know, one way I've talked about it a lot just when I've given an overview to people sometimes is – you know, what a problem that Job questioned God, but it was a problem that he demanded answers. And I think it's that demand, it's that pride. Yeah, what were you going to add? Well, I was just going to say, in a modern day terminology, it sounds like just the old idea of entitlement. Yeah, entitlement. Yeah, that Job felt entitled to blessings if he did what was right, and then he felt entitled to go against God. Um, that God, you know, that he could hold God to some contract, like I said earlier. Uh, I love this C.S. Lewis quote, and he's not even really talking about Job, but I thought it was fitting. He says, for the modern man, the roles of God and man are reversed. He is the judge, meaning man is the judge. God is in the dock. If you think about even a British courtroom scene that you've seen, like God's in the little witness stand. He is, or, or before the bench, he is quite a kindly judge. If God should have a reasonable defense for being the God who permits war, poverty, and disease, he is ready to listen to it. The trial may even end in God's acquittal, but the important thing is that man is on the bench and God is in the dock. And I think that's what Job did. That in a lot of ways, Job reversed the positions. He was ready to hear God out, but he wanted to make a call on whether God was doing the right thing or not. And that's, that's a sin. That's wrong. Um, okay, let's shift. What does Job show us about behind the scenes? It's fairly obvious, but like, what do y'all see? What do we know about the spiritual world um, that, that the book of Job kind of reveals? I think that captures it perfectly. There's a whole lot more going on than we can observe at times. Um, in that book I told you about with those um, articles about Job, Philip Yancey has a great quote. He says, which is the true story of Christmas? Luke's pastoral vision in Luke 2 or Revelation's account of the cosmos at war in Revelation 12 where there's the lady and the dragon. and um, They are the same story, of course, only the 
level of viewing differs. Luke gives the view from earth and Revelation shades in details from the unseen world. And I love that idea. Like Revelation is the true Christ- Revelation 12 is the Christmas story. Luke 2 is the Christmas story. But none of us would say those are the same story and yet from God's point of view it's all taking place. From Job's point of view, he's only got parts of one th- of chapters 1 and 2 and then these all these speeches and all these friends coming against him. But from our point of view, we see those blanks. It's like We've got the full copy, and he's only got the redacted, the blacked-out copy. He only knows the earth side. We know both sides. And it's, it's important for us to remember that usually we're not in that position. That in heaven we may be in that position. That we may be able to look back and, you know, whether it's like that Amy Grant song, Angels Watching Over Me, or that's old, old song. But, um, or whatever else, like be able to see what God was doing right now. And there's even a place in Job where it talks about like catching glimpses of his ways. Right now we catch glimpses of his ways. And we don't know everything. And we got to know that we don't know everything. That's real important. Through our New Testament lens, John's going to talk about how we can look back with what we do know and what we can say about Job. So I'll, I'll try to go quickly here. And we've touched on some of this already. If you guys remember back to discussions about Redeemer, my Redeemer lives, looking back at chapter 19. So just to get a real quick recap on that. That, a lot of people take that as, hey, Job in crying out to God, potentially prophetic in its nature, things like that. And I'm excited for you guys to go back, read for yourself, see what people are saying, kind of come to that own uh, perspective on your own there. Some of the other thing that's pretty neat to see here in doing this is we now take the understanding that we have through Christ, and based on that, when looking at Job, in how he suffered, in the way he went about his life, what can we take and then apply to ourselves? One of the great things we obviously see there is that theme of suffering. And how Job, if you guys are able to kind of quickly turn, chapter 13, verse 15. Right there, Job, he has this, this famous saying. You guys might have heard. There's some songs about it, things like that, where Job says, hey, though he slay me. And right there, he's talking about God. And I don't remember exactly what it says right for that, but it's along the lines of, hey, I, I still trust in him. Yeah, I will trust in him. And that's an idea, too, where you see Christ going in, where Christ as the great sufferer, God made man. Nothing more extreme than that. Who humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross, taking on the form of a servant. Where you then see that through Christ as well, where, hey God, let this cup of suffering pass from me, but let it be your will that's done, not mine. So that's where just a value in seeing Job. And now he did continue in the midst of suffering. Continue to seek God, even though at times demanding things from God that wasn't rightfully his. So that's one value we take away. Another place, if you, you want to check it out, is again in verse 42, where you see Job's, you know, his, his kind of ultimate repentance there, where he's come before God, and he almost says in a lot of that, in that section there in verse 42, 5 through 6, I had heard of you, and this is where he's talking to God, I had heard of you by hearing of the ear, but now my eye sees you. Therefore, I despise myself and repent in dust and ashes. So Job, he's heard God's word. He's communicated with him this manner where he's seen God's presence in a lot of those ways to where he's been enlightened in a whole new way. Not that he didn't know of God before, but his relationship's taken this new dynamic with God, this new level of intimacy and having those same conversations with him. 
And when he says, I despise myself, he says, you are God and I am not. Which we now know in that New Testament, apart from Christ, all sin falls short of the glory of God. And the wages of that sin is death. Humble thyself in the sight of the Lord and he will lift you up in recognition. I am a sinner in need of a savior. This is Job here saying, hey God, you're God. I'm not. You have the answers. I don't. And that's where Job, he begins to find this peace in recognizing his ultimate and utter dependent need on God. One of the interesting pieces that I found in there as I was doing some research on some of this is what Job says there where um, repent in dust and ashes. Going back to chapter 2, when the friends were doing well, they come, they do that ministry of presence where they're sitting with him. And it describes that section in 2.11 as them coming for the purposes of sympathy and providing comfort. Right here in this section where Job says, repent, that can be translated, I despise myself, which he said before, and am comforted in dust and ashes. So that's where in Job's ultimate repentance, that's where he finds his peace. And the same where we now do that same way with Christ, where it's, hey, through God and God alone, I'm reconciled. For God so loved the world, he gave his only begotten son. And it's that idea where, too, we find that peace in him. So again, we're taking what we know now and putting it back there. And one of the things that we have that Job didn't necessarily, that Benson alluded to, was we know how Job's story ended, where he was then reconciled with God. And we also know the ending of our story, too, whether that be in death or Jesus coming back. Us then going to a place where, hey, there is peace. There is that in Christ and in Christ alone. So that's one of the neat things there. The next section, jumping into, if you don't mind going to that next You've slide. You've got it. Just hit right. Okay. So this one looks at why do we suffer? And hey, before I jump into this, I want to also just make the disclaimer. A lot of people here, you may be coming for a reason. Hey, I just want to know the book better. I may just want to have a better understanding of it, a knowledge of it. Some of you too may be here because you're going through an extreme time of pain in your own life. So as we talk to these points, it is not to marginalize struggle. It is not to marginalize pain in any way. I'm sure there are things you're going through I can't begin to imagine. Anything like that. But this, it's a general framework through some of the different ways in which we do suffer and how that can come about. So this first one, natural consequences as a result of the fall. Genesis 3, sin enters the world and that sends a fracture throughout mankind that we now feel today where there's then strife between Adam and Eve, God then curses the ground. You then see the entrance of death, where those are things that just because sin is now entered, God's perfect world is then fractured in a new way. That second one, Satan taking actions against us by God's permission. Beautiful example, Job 1 and 2. You see here where he comes through and he says, hey, hey God, that's your champion? Let me show you what I can do against him and see how he'll change his ways. Another one, consequences of our own Decisions. There's a way that seems right to a man, but in the end, it leads to death, where God has designed life to work in a certain and natural order. And we step out of that order, there are consequences. That's not God necessarily punishing us or in anger against us, but God saying, no, 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 man, that's not where life is found. Walk and abide with me, and in that, you will be fruitful. And that final one, God does discipline those he loves. In the same way, a good father, lovingly, not out of anger, not out of wrath, but lovingly disciplines those in a manner where he draws them back. What I think gets tricky in a lot of this, where myself and I think others sometimes find themselves getting into trouble, is us then discerning, how do we know which one we're going through? How how do we know 
Which one? Is it a consequence of my own decision? God disciplining those he loves? I, can remember, I was 18. Got arrested, spent a night in jail. Underage drinking, minor intoxication, possession, everything like that. And I've, I thought about this in preparation. Was that God disciplining me? Was that Satan somehow putting this police officer there? Or was that, man, I was just a dumb 18-year-old. I think in a lot of those ways, it was probably mostly me just being a dumb 18-year-old. But that's one of those where you don't necessarily know exactly where things are going. So that's where Job, one of those main takeaways in suffering is, hey, God, I I am with you. I will walk with you. I don't understand it. It doesn't make sense. So again, don't want to marginalize any suffering or pain. But there is a truth in coming. Hey, God is God. I am not. Even though I don't understand it, I will press on. Yeah. You might even add to that just the sovereignty of God is the reason that we suffer. Yeah. I, I think a lot of that that could almost be an umbrella for all four of those. Yeah. A corollary of a verse I was reading this morning just coincidentally, Hebrews uh, 12, 1, it talks about getting entangled in sin. Yeah. But the last part of the verse talks about running the race. Yeah, marked out for us. Yeah. And to me, it's always been the key is that it, God has set it before us. So our job is to run the race. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. And I think the beautiful part of that, too, that ties in directly with that, is it, he's alluding to right there, there's a section where in Hebrews 12, 2, it talks about fixing our eyes on Christ Jesus, the pioneer and perfecter, which it's a beautiful representation of in suffering, striving, hey, I'm going to set my eyes on God, even though I don't fully understand it. Yeah, man. Yeah. Yeah. It's that it's that gift where yeah, you, you don't necessarily know. Kind of going first Peter they oftentimes go to that where one first Peter one it talks about if necessary, you have been distressed by various trials, so that the testing of your faith may be found to result in glory, honor, and praise at the revelation of Jesus Christ. So that's one of those where in the moment, man, you may not understand it. But that is one of those God does work all things for the good of those who love him. And again, not to marginalize pain, but to recognize God is still God and he is still good. Yeah, any other questions? No, I don't believe you get the true understanding of that until you have gone through a while. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, and I think Job, he would agree with you where he thought he understood at the start and then continued. One of those verses that kind of someone introduced to me towards the start going exactly along the lines of what you said, 23.10 in Job, where Job basically says, hey, God knows the way that I take. When he has tested me, I will come forth as gold. So as we are continuously refined into an image to look more like Christ, God will use trials and testing as a way to go about that. Great points. Cool. Oh, no, that was great, John. Thank you. You know, there's some wrong views of suffering out there, and we'll hit this fast, but just something to think about, something to ponder. One, obviously, Job speaks against the doctrine of divine retribution, but it's important that we realize this comes up for us, too, that we can all have a hint of this sometimes in our theology, that we can fall into this, and it's important to realize that we can do that and, and be careful that we don't. One way that comes up almost in reverse with the kind of the flip side of that coin is the theology out there that some have called 
health wealth theology or the prosperity gospel, that if you just have enough faith, you won't face this stuff. I I don't understand, and I'm sure I could find some places where they've tried to argue against what we would say the book of Job says, but I just think the book of Job really does answer that sort of theology more than any other book, because we're just able to say, look at Job, the whole point of this is, Job was someone who served the Lord, and for God's greater ends, he went through some severe suffering. I think even for us in kind of a day-to-day way, Job teaches us to be very careful about where we blame suffering. That I will all the time, you know, good, well-meaning Christians, Watermark members, you know, all that, it's still very easy to hear somebody say, man, my family's really been getting sick recently, Um, you know, Satan's really bringing attack because I've been growing so much or whatever. They mean well, and they may be right. But I just think we need to be careful about that stuff. Because for all we know, God's brought sickness into a family. Can he do that? I mean, when Paul talks about the thorn in his flesh, he talks about it like that's something God has given to him. Is it Satan and God allowing it? Is it God causing it? I don't don't know. I think that's hard to figure out exactly from Scripture. We know God's original intent wasn't sickness, but we know he uses things, and the ultimate thing being his son's death on the cross, which in the one, on the one hand was evil, and on the second hand was the very best blessing we could have ever received. So, so we just need to be careful about where we, where we say sin is coming from. It may not be because you disrespected your, you know, your friend yesterday that you have a cold today. Day, um, God, God doesn't always work in that sort of direct, automatic way, and that's that's really what this book book shares with us. Um, I think God, I think Job also teaches us not to make our understanding the guide. That um, we really do often look at our world through our own lens in a way that's unhealthy. That's, it's impossible not to look at the world through your own lens, but it is possible to doubt yourself more. To say there is a whole unseen world going on here, plus even the things I can see, I don't always understand. I don't understand why God would put blessings on a land where there's no person. I don't understand why God would make a hippopotamus. I don't, you know, I don't get it. But it's there, and I have to trust that God is doing something, doing more than I understand. Um, This first quote really got me. Innocent suffering is a hippopotamus. The only sense it makes, it makes to God, for it is not amenable to human rationality. Remember, you know, lots of people think that's what behemoth is in this thing. And that's one of the points God's making, Klein says, is that your innocent suffering may be hippopotamus. You may have to say mystery. And, and God is given and he's taken away and blessed be the name of the Lord. I kneel before that mystery. Um, you know, I, hippopotamus, I, for me, suffering's a duck-billed platypus. For whatever reason, that one strikes me as even more of a ridiculous creature. God wouldn't probably have used that with Job because Job wouldn't have known that a duck-billed platypus existed. But for us to look at that thing and say, why did God make this mammal that lays eggs but has a bill of a duck and da-da-da? Like, it's so weird to us. But God has his purposes, and and for me, when I go through suffering, that, that's how I want to look at it. It's a hippopotamus. It's a duck-billed platypus. Another quote from that old guy, Chrysostom. But God, again, and we've read this quote before, but God does not create behemoth and leviathan. God 
does not allow or create your suffering because his creation is oriented to provide us what is useful to you. But one may ask, what is their use? We ignore what is, what is the mysterious utility of these monsters. But if we want to take the risk of an explanation, we may say that they lead toward the knowledge of God. That we don't know why we suffer all the time. A lot of the time we really don't know. But we at least can say it can lead toward the knowledge of God. We can at least say, as somebody was talking about from James 1, we chalk it up. We consider it pure joy. The problem of evil. So my logic professor said this was an answer to the problem of evil. Um, why did he say that? What, what, you know, and the problem of evil, just to just explain that real fast, is this kind of overarching deal of why is there any suffering in the world? Why, if God is so good, does he allow evil to happen? Does he allow sin to happen? Does he allow innocent people to suffer or to die? And I would say that same answer is there. That this is an excellent answer to the problem of evil, even if it doesn't give us what we want to know. We want to know why there's that hurricane. We want to know why Katrina happened. And God, sometimes, lots of times, we just have to look before him and say, bless the name of the Lord, I kneel before the mystery. That God at least is able to say, I exist and I'm just beyond you. And we don't know why he didn't tell us why it all happened, but he didn't. We don't know why God isn't daily kind of giving us a report on his activities, except that would set up a pretty weird relationship. That would set up a situation where God then is in the dock and we're on the judge's bench. Um, and the answer, God's answer in Job to the problem of evil isn't what we want to hear, but it, but it is indeed a pretty great answer. How does Job teach us to suffer? Jo- uh, John hit on this a little bit, so we don't necessarily have to go on this too much. But um, I would say remembering that God is not in the wrong. Standing on that foundation, which isn't where Job stood, um, would be part of that. That remembering that it can come from a lot of different sources and that we have to trust that God knows what he's doing. But I'd also say, too, it teaches us not to listen to all the spiritual-sounding words. Sometimes we're going to, in our own heads, come up with some really good theologies. Job did that. And sometimes the friends who come with us will say things like, Man, haven't you, didn't you, he, you know, haven't you heard everybody says? Or, I, I had this spiritual vision, and I believe I have a word for you. Could they? Maybe. But we weigh everything with Scripture. We look at everything through the lens of what's true. And we've got to be careful that in our own minds, our own, especially if you're going through suffering, your mind is going to be affected. You're going to be emotional. You're going to have a hard time with that. It's easy for us to make up our own little theologies that sound so close but aren't right there. And it's so easy for others to do that too. And there may be days in your world and your life that you have to stand before friends and maybe you don't fight back as quite as vitriolically as Job did, but that you have to say, I know that at least what they're saying isn't true. I may have done something wrong, but I know that they don't know the full story. Um, and I think that's a, that's a takeaway too. I think it answers the question, can we question God? I, I, I would say the answer is yes. I, God does not get mad at Job for having a concern, a sadness, a, a problem with what he's done. 
You know, Jesus in the garden, before he knows he's going to die, even he is, in a sense, sort of questioning God. He's not questioning God's character, but he's asking God questions. And that's what I mean by question God. I probably should have even phrased that differently. Can we ask God questions? Yeah. We can ask God questions. The problem is when we start demanding answers. The problem is when we don't take mystery for an answer. You know, parents tell their kids, you know, you got to take no for an answer or whatever. Well, we've got to sometimes take mystery for an answer. We've got to be willing to take, I love you, but I won't tell you for an answer. And then... Another question that I think is raised by the book of Job, and, and this is about where we'll end here. Um, we got one more thing, but, but we're getting close. Um, can we get angry at God? I think there's two knee-jerk reactions to this question, and it's possible that you fall into one of these camps. Maybe not. But for a lot of us, we automatically say, of course you can. Of course you can get angry at God. Others of us say, get angry at God? No way. Like, those two words shouldn't even be in the same sentence. I would say probably whatever's behind both of those knee jerks, that's probably where we err. That being real quick to be like, obviously, you should never ever be angry at God, and that's the worst sin you can ever imagine. But being in the camp where we say, of course, I get angry. Everybody gets angry. So, of course, I can get angry at God is probably a wrong answer, too. I think it depends a lot on how we define anger. If we mean by that really just displeasure, if we mean are we going to sometimes be sad about the choices God makes, then when God puts me through a specific suffering, when God puts you through a specific suffering, the death of a loved one, a a real dark illness, or a cold, (laughs) um, when, when you face miscarriage or you face a breakup, You know, can you be sad about that? Is that okay? Yeah. James doesn't tell us, you be happy about all things. He says, you've got to consider it pure joy. You've got to mentally say, hey, I'm going to accept that this is a joyous thing, even if I'm not always as happy because because this hurts. This is painful. So if that's what we mean by angry... Yes, you can be emotionally sad about something God did. Um, But a lot of times, what the word anger really means is it's disapproval. Or it means, hidden in there is some sort of assumption of wrongdoing. And and I think that's a different story. I, I like this way John Piper set it up. What is anger? The common definition is an intense emotional state induced by displeasure. So that's sort of that first definition. But there is an ambiguity in this definition. You can be displeased by a thing or by a person. Anger at a thing does not contain indignation at a choice or an act. We simply don't like the effect of the thing, the broken clutch or the grain of sand that just blew in our eye or rain on our picnic. But when we get angry at a person, we are displeased with a choice they made and an act they performed. Anger at a person always implies strong disapproval. If you're angry at me, you think I have done something I should not have done. I think the question, can we get angry at God, um... It also depends on what we mean by can. If we really just mean do, like do we sometimes get angry at God? Of course we do. Probably everybody in here has been angry at God at some point, and maybe that happens often. If, if we mean can we express our anger so we feel angry like Job did, 
can we tell God about it? Of course we can. Of course we can tell God the emotions we're already feeling. He loves it when we're authentic and, and honest. Even if we believe what we're doing is wrong, it's good for us to say, God, right now I just feel angry at you. But that's not quite the same as saying, should we get angry at God? Is it right to be angry at God? I don't know how you would answer that question, but I would say no. That if, we, if anger is really defined at showing some sort of disapproval, that we have then put ourselves on the judge's seat and we've put God in the dock. The minute we begin to say, God, I have the right to tell you you did this wrong. And I know when in an, you know, in an emotion you're not saying it that clearly, but I think the book of Job says we can't demand answers. We can't say that in the end we have the right to grade God's term papers. We're just not in that position. So I know that's tough. I encourage you to wrestle with it. We can talk about it after. Um, But um, because of time, let me just move on to the last thing. How does Job teach us to comfort? Um, Real quick, and then we really will end. Ideas. Where did the friends go wrong, and where should we do better? What are your thoughts on that? How should we comfort people who, like Job, are facing suffering, whether we know the reason or not? We can just sit with them. Yeah. Yeah, that's great. It's also good to look at our part in a situation. That's great. Yeah. Remember that you may be at fault. And, and what she said at first, if you didn't hear, is that she said we can sit with them. We can be silent with them, but be with them. And I've had to learn a lot about how important that can be. Other thoughts? Yeah. Uh, back to the first part. Many times I've discovered it's because you don't know what to say to someone who is suffering, you refrain from trying to comfort them. And I think going and just showing up and not feeling like you have to say anything. That's a great point. Yeah, when you don't know what to say, sometimes we do totally avoid playing any part. And instead, we should go to them and at least at least try, but trying may not always involve words. Because that's the flip side. Sometimes when we don't know what to say, especially if you're wired like me and you like to talk... Um, you just say something. But I think Job shows us that you can say a lot of hurtful things and not know it. A lot of even good-sounding things and not know it. And so we have to be careful that we're led in the way we speak and we're wise in the way we speak. And, um, you know, we hold back rather than... And even like an Elohu who held back for a while, that we never let ourselves get to the point where we're like, oh, I'm, about, I'm like wineskins about to burst. i got to say something. If you got to say something, go pray about that. Say those things to God. Ask him what he thinks about them and then come back but other thoughts how can we comfort better than job's friends did we often assume we know the entire situation when there's no way we can yeah don't assume you know the whole situation none of them did i think loving someone isn't about being there always just when the times are good or you're fully functional sometimes it's, it's being with them and just just you treat them no different when they're suffering as you did when they were healthy and happy functional because Someone's dying of cancer, you're, you, you want to love them into eternity. Yeah. Not just when yeah, don't just hang with them and be their friend when things are good. You've got to treat them similarly when things are bad. 
Doesn't mean you don't have stuff to say to them. Doesn't mean there's not times to call people out. But I think timing is a big part of it. And I think just really say, really, just like Job should have doubted himself more, being willing to doubt ourselves and say, you know what, God, I need your words as I go to this person. Because I know when I faced a certain situation, this is what I needed, but that may not be exactly what this Job, my friend, um, needs. Um, well, guys, I really appreciate you being here. Sorry to go a little bit over. There are evaluations that John has, and they would love for you to fill those out before you leave. And I'm sorry. I know we're running late, so that even makes that hard. Um, but, guys, thank you so much. Please feel free to come ask questions. My email is just bhines, B-H-I-N-E-S, at watermark.org. Um, John's is jalmquist at watermark. Feel free to ask us questions. Um, and I'll be glad to send you notes and stuff, too, if you ever want to send, send me an email. So. Yeah, good call. Thank you for reminding me. Thank y'all.